even if you didn't grow up in the 70s, I'm sure you recognize that uh, classic intro to Big Old Jet Airliner. That song was written by a guy named Paul Pena, who was a blind blues musician living in San Francisco. Uh, it was covered by a Steve Miller Band, of course. But uh, I think that was Paul's only big hit. But uh, I didn't know any of this at the time in the 70s. In fact, I didn't know any of the story I'm about to tell you until the mid-90s when I was living in San Francisco and making very little money and looking for something to do. And in the Bay, I think it was called the Bay Guardian, there was uh, a feature every week of uh, fun, interesting things that were happening that were free. And I always used to check that out and look for something. And uh, one night I was, or one day I was at work one afternoon and I, I looked and I saw that that evening there was going to be a performance at the Asian Art Museum of uh, a blues musician playing together with a Mongolian throat singer. And I never heard of Mongolian throat singing, but I thought that was an interesting combination. I've always liked uh the, the sort of melding of different musical genres and stuff. Uh, and so I called up my girlfriend and said, hey, let's uh, let's go out tonight. I, you know, there's this thing happening at the museum. So went to the museum and these two dudes came out on stage and there were probably 50 people sitting on folding chairs in a, you know, bare room in this museum. And these two guys came out. One guy was Paul Pena, blind. Somebody helped him to a stool. He sat down, he had a blues guitar and he was a sort of a raspy bluesy looking guy and the other dude was uh the mongolian throat singer who was wearing this brightly colored outfit and like the the shoes that curl up at the toe and fancy hat and like he was really decked out in uh in his mongolian attire and um they did a couple of of songs that blew my mind and then they and then Paul Pena uh told the story of how this whole thing had happened it turns out that this was the first night of their North American tour uh and the way this came about was that Paul Pena years earlier 3 or 4 years before this was lying in bed in his apartment, listening to a shortwave radio. If you don't know what a shortwave radio is, it, it, it was, I guess they, I don't know if they even exist anymore, but before the internet, uh, they had these radios that would pick up shortwave uh, frequencies that traveled very far. So if you were in a, a place with good reception, you could have this little pocket radio and you could listen to Radio Moscow, you could listen to things being transmitted from any part of the planet. Uh, I took one on my first trip to Asia and, and used to listen to the BBC at night just because I was hungry to hear someone speaking in English, you know. Um, but that was before, you know, you had a thing in your pocket, your phone that, that gave you immediate access to everything that was happening everywhere in the world. You people coming up now can't imagine what that was like. Uh, because there's no way to get that far away anymore unless you're like in the jungle or something where you're not getting phone reception. But I was in Kashmir and I can remember thinking, you know, if a nuclear bomb went off, I wouldn't know. And as it turned out, when I was in India, I don't think I was in Kashmir, but I was still in India when uh, Chernobyl blew up. Um, so there was a nuclear event while I was in in India. 
Um, but in any case, the story was Paul Payne is lying in his bed listening to shortwave radio. And he's going down the dial and he, he hits this thing that he's never heard before. These sounds are coming out of the radio that are blowing his mind. Turns out it's Radio Moscow transmitting the Mongolian throat singing championships. And Paul got obsessed with that, with that sound. How do they make that sound? It's amazing. Let me play a little of that sound for you right now. So Paul's lying there in his bed and he hears this sound and he decides he's got to find out how to do this. And he gets together some money and he flies to Mongolia. Also known as Tuvan throat singing. This technique essentially has two parts. One created in the chest or the throat that you're hearing now, a low. And then there's a tone created in the nasal cavity. And then these two tones combine to create a third tone. Which is where it gets really fucking weird. That motorcycle, by the way, was not made by a Mongolian. That was uh, a little excerpt from a, a very funky, atmospheric uh, CD that I had. Somebody gave to me years ago. The KLF Chill Out. Check that out. It's it's full of interesting stuff. I'll play some more from it in future podcasts. Anyway, uh, Paul Pena flew to Mongolia blind, got off the plane and started asking around, who can teach me to throat sing? Now, you or me flying to Mongolia and getting off the plane and starting to ask questions would be hard enough, but imagine if you're blind. I I, I can't imagine. I, I, I just, there's no way. But anyway, so he, he ends up meeting 
the world champion throat singer who won on the competition that he had been listening to on his shortwave radio that night, the Mongolian dude who won that becomes his teacher and they become friends. And after Paul Pena studies this for a couple of years and gets really good at it, and I think came in third in in the same competition that he had listened to on his radio that dark night in San Francisco, the two of them decide, let's go off on tour and do some music together. And here I am in San Francisco sitting there in the first stop on their tour that they had thrown together. Luckily, Someone else recognized how amazing this whole thing was and filmed a documentary called Genghis Blues. Highly recommend that to you. It's uh, a great, it's a great documentary. It won something at Sundance and was nominated for an Oscar. And so it's around. You can definitely find it. I don't know if it's on Netflix or whatever, but it's out there. Uh, Genghis Blues. And before I finish, you know, the reason I'm talking about all this is my guest today is Mongolian. Um, You know, (laughs) he doesn't do throat singing as far as I know. He left there as a child. He grew up in Canada and uh, he's lived in the U.S., you know, most of his adult life. Um, So I hope I'm not being culturally insensitive by throwing all this Mongolian stuff in there. But it's a great story. I love Mongolian throat singing. And uh, this just seemed like uh, a good excuse to tell you about this. Uh, I'll wrap this this up with uh, a tune called The Ballad of Sher Shimjer, I think. And I think that's the dude who taught Paul Pena how to do this. And you'll hear it's Paul Pena and his teacher uh, singing together, and it tells the story. If you can listen to the words, it tells the story, uh, basically, that I just told you. Check it out. Yeah. I was asking and listening, doing my thing for five long years, and then I keep on looking for someone to tell me just how to sing like him. Couldn't find him. What you talking about? Huh, me? What you talking about? So good? What you talking about? Then I get My friend's got a new way that he sings like nobody ever heard sing. Come on. What you talking about? Hurry. What you talking about? So good? What you talking about? Kind of good, uh. So I'm gonna keep on going, people, and they tell me next year. I might go to Kazoo to play my thing so they can hear Chessinger singing. funky 
That is some funky shit right there. I uh, hope Brian Bow doesn't mind me, uh, you know, pivoting off his ethnicity to throw all this Mongolian shit into the podcast. But uh, yeah, it's funny how that would be offensive for some ethnicities, I think. But I don't know. I, I lose track of what's offensive and what isn't. You know, last week I talked about why I didn't have kids because I'd gotten a couple of emails from people asking me to expound upon that. And I realized later that I left out uh, a major consideration for me. You know, I, I talked about, uh, I sort of talked about the selfish aspects of it, how I didn't want to lose freedom and, and, you know, fuck you opportunity or if not money, fuck you freedom to be able to walk away from situations that were uncomfortable and that kids can kind of trap you into in a way. But I didn't talk about uh, one of the major considerations for me, which is hard to talk about. Maybe that's why I forgot, because I often leave it out of the conversation. Because people who have kids, um, you know, you, you love them more than anyone else in your life, probably, and hopefully. And so you wish the best for them. But what do you do if your honest assessment of the state of the world contradicts that? What do you do if you look at the world and say, this is fucked. This is going in the wrong direction. Things are getting worse, not better. Um, how do you deal with that? And I, I think that's part of, of a big part of the reason I never had kids because I've always had a sense that like, this is wrong. We're doing this wrong. Now, I don't know if that's because I'm a reincarnated hunter gatherer and I've got some, you know, distant, uh, spiritual memory of other ways of living, or it's because I was raised in the seventies and I saw too many episodes of Kung Fu and, uh, read too much, uh, you know, bury my heart at wounded knee or, I don't know where that comes from, but I've always had that sense that this is not the right way for our species to be living. And so uh, you can see that the work I'm doing, uh, the books I'm writing are very much in alignment with that um, and sort of a, you know, a, a closing of a circle in a certain way. But I've always had that sense. And so when I look at, uh, in, you know, inviting children into this world, I kind of feel like, you know, it's like, why would I why would I wake up a buddy who's perfectly happy, happily asleep at three in the morning to invite him to a party that's that's winding down? Right. I wouldn't do that. You might you might wake him up at 10. And it's like, hey, this is a great party. There's good music. Everything's happening. This is great. Come on. Join the party, man. Come on. Put on some clothes. Come out. Yeah, you would do that, right? But you wouldn't do that if you look at the party and you see people puking and, you know, a bunch of cigarette butts all over the place and turned over bottles of beer and, you know, three or four, like, shit-faced people slouched up in the corner. You're not going to call up your buddy and say, put on some clothes and come to this party. And that's kind of how I feel having kids would be. You know, we talk about it's it's amazing how afraid we are of death, but we always talk about the death that comes after life. We never talk about the death that comes before life, the death from which we are born, which is completely neutral, right? Nobody talks about how horrible it was before they got born. So it's funny how terrified we are to go back to the place that we don't have any bad memories of 
You know, very strange. So waking someone up, you know, someone who hasn't been born is not, you're not doing them any favor, right? Because where they are is fine. It's neutral. It's, it's a non-issue. You're not saving them from non-existence. So I don't talk about this with people who have kids. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm you know, saying it to those of you who have kids because it's a painful thing. Because if you agree that the world is kind of fucked and getting more fucked, then, you know, what are you hoping for? You're hoping like your kids will be exceptional. Your kids will be lucky. They'll escape the, the devastation, the climactic bullshit that we're doing to our planet. They'll escape the toxicity in the food supply. They'll escape the needless fucking wars that we keep provoking. They'll escape all that shit, even though it's getting worse and worse and worse. And and life will have been worth living for them. Well, yeah, I hope it's true, too. But uh, statistically, a lot of those kids aren't going to escape that shit. So anyway, that that's a big reason why I haven't had kids, because I feel like it's inviting them to a party that's um, not a particularly good party anyway. And it's coming to an end. Um. I'm getting to the point now, and I guess this is a good problem to have, but I'm I'm getting to the point now where I just can't possibly answer all the emails I get. And I, I appreciate the feeling of connection that a lot of people have that, that leads them to write to me. And um, and I have to say, like, this is all novel for me, right? As you know, five years ago, I was just a guy teaching English in Barcelona. Nobody was sending me emails from the other side of the world other than my mother. And... Um, so, you know, I, I do feel some obligation, but I can't get anything else done if I'm getting 50 to 100 emails a day from people. And so there's just no way and I don't have enough money to hire assistants and all that. Um, so basically, I get three types of emails. I think most of them fall into one of these three categories. The first category and the one I'm so appreciative for is just people who want to say thanks for the book, for the podcast. They're just, you know... Uh, they're living alone. They're living in a little village somewhere or in a town where people are kind of tight assed and they listen to the podcast and they realize like, ah, there are people out there like me. There are people who think the way I do and they feel some support and some sense of community from that. And man, it's so nice to hear from those people. And, you know, even if I don't get back to you, please know that I read every email that comes my way. Um, and uh, I really appreciate that, and, and uh, it's, it's a bizarre connection that we have, but it's real and it's wonderful. The other two types are people asking for advice, uh, personal advice or professional advice. People asking me for personal advice, I got to say, if you're writing to me, you already know what I'm going to say. So, you know, it's like my perspective is pretty clear on things, so... I, I, I don't answer most of these because I feel like, you know, you already know what I would say and that's why you're writing to me and not to someone who would say something else. You know, people know what Dan Savage is going to say when they write and say, am I weird because I like to jerk off and, you know, wear women's panties? You know, he's going to say no. You know, he's going to say that's fine. Don't worry about it. That's why they write to Dan Savage, right? If they went and talked to their priest about it, the priest would say something else. So they don't go to talk to the priest. They write to Dan because they know he's going to be cool and, and accepting and open-minded and all that. So I imagine people have, you know, expect that same sort of perspective from me. So if you're asking me for personal advice, you already know what I'm going to say in most cases if I had time to say it. And secondly, 
I don't, you know, I'm not someone to ask for personal advice because I don't fucking know. I don't have any answers. Um, I was out with a friend last night having a couple drinks and I realized like I'm 17 years older than him. And, and you know, for a minute I was just like, fuck, I could be your father. It's so weird. And he, he said, he asked me, what do you know that people my age don't know? And I thought about it for a second and I, nothing. <laughs> really. I mean, the only thing I know at 53 that he doesn't know at 36 is how fast those years go by. That's all I know. And that's something that at 36, he can't possibly understand the way I do, no matter how many times he hears it and, and intellectually believes it, because you can only understand that on an experiential level. There are some things that you you can wrap your head around it, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's like I'll never experience, I'll never know what it feels like to be a woman, right? I mean, I can think about it. I can imagine the menstrual cycle and the, you know, this and that and all, you know, but I'll never really know. So it's, it's age is the same way. You don't really know until you do it. So it's kind of useless to tell people, hey, you know, time flies. You're good. Go so fast. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that shit too in my 20s and 30s. And I don't know. I don't know. I didn't understand it the way I do now. And the other thing is people writing to me for professional advice. I'm starting to get a lot of these emails from people saying, hey, I'd like to be a, a researcher, a clinical researcher, you know, clinical psychologist or a research psychologist, or I'd like to, you know, get into like psychedelic research and using hallucinogens and helping heal people. That's all great. And I really applaud that. And I want to support that. And I, I hope you can make a life doing those things. But I'm not the guy to ask. Because, you know, asking me for professional advice is like asking a stowaway for navigational tips. I just fucking stumbled into where I am now. There, there was no great plan. There was no careful consideration of, you know, taking different steps I need to take and all that. Honestly, I have no fucking idea how I got to where I am. And I don't even really know where I am. And, and where I am might not be where you want to be, honestly. Um, you know, you listen to the podcast and maybe you've read Sex at Dawn and you've got an idea of what it's like to be me. But I guarantee you it's probably pretty far from the reality. You know, uh, like I'm not getting any offers to teach at American universities no, nobody's, you know, ringing my bell trying to, you know, convince me to come and teach at Harvard or whatever. That's not happening and it never will happen and probably shouldn't happen because I could not survive a fucking week in American academia with all the ass kissing and political correct bullshit going on there. Um, but, you know, if you're looking for career advice, you don't want my career. My career has no stability, no uh, guarantees of anything, you know, pension, health care, whatever. Nothing, you know. I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. So I'm not the guy to ask for career advice. So thank you for thinking, you know, I might have some pearls of wisdom for you, but I don't. Um, so. That is probably as much ranting as I need to be doing this week. The guest is Brian Bow. He's a really interesting guy. He's a guy you can talk to for career advice. He's super smart, PhD, MD. He's um, doing his residency here at um, OSU, Oregon State University, I think. Maybe I'm fucking that up, but he's up on the mountain above Portland. 
uh, in emergency medicine. So he's the guy, when you wreck your motorcycle, he's the guy who's going to greet you when the ambulance pulls your sorry ass up to the hospital and hopefully save your life. He's a really good guy. Uh, You know, he's a guy that you wouldn't know until you dig in a little bit how accomplished he is um, because he comes across as so low-key and and, uh, decent. Not that there's an inherent conflict between decency and and accomplished and professional accomplishment but he doesn't have that ego that a lot of people get when they start you know accumulating degrees from ivy league schools <laughs> so anyway uh brian bow really interesting cat uh lots of interesting perspectives on medicine on life on death on multicultural issues i really enjoyed this conversation with him and hope you will as well thanks for listening catch you next week you got you got dick slapped right in the eye. All right, all right. I am here with Brian Bow in Portland, Oregon, for what I believe is probably going to be remembered as the first day of summer. Doesn't it True. feel like that? It feels like today, it's happening. Totally, it wasn't yesterday. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah, it's today. Since today, so summer has begun, early summer, but everything outside is blooming, everything is flowering, it's It's green, it's lush, there are insects buzzing around and birds everywhere, this place is so lovely, when it's alive, it's always alive though, even when it's raining, it's always, it is, there's always a vibration of life. It's like a jungle. Yeah. It's a jungle. It is, it's It's a temperate rainforest. It totally is. You know, it's pretty, pretty... A vital place. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is death. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's talk about we'll let's flip a one eighty on this. Yeah, dude. <laughs> bring it down. So uh, Brian, how the hell did I meet you? I guess you sent an email. Out I reached of the out blue. to you. It's actually yeah. kind of crazy to be on the podcast that I was listening to like eight months ago. Right. And then I think what happened was was I had heard you mention something very briefly about Portland, and oh, me right. and my wife had just moved here from the East Coast. And so I was like, well, you know what? Let's reach out to this guy, see what he's up to. And I actually was pretty surprised when you were down to just grab a beer. So, Well, it just shows you how humble I am. It's true, you man. Know, I just you're, try to you're keep a it saint. real, Brian. You're a saint. Yeah, exactly. Despite my amazing, amazing fame and fortune. Jack of all trades, man. Jack of all trades. <laughs> Jack off of all trades. Uh, anyway, so yeah, we got a, what did we, we, we didn't get a beer. We got a, we got a tea a with tea. your wife and my that wife. That was very fancy. Yeah. yeah. At a fancy tea yeah. place. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the three of you went on in Spanish for like 15 minutes. Oh, too. that must have been fun for you. I, I hate when people It was do great. That. It was great. I just sat there, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't know. It really irritates me when as French people love to do that. They're like, oh, we all speak French. Fuck yeah, everyone else. Let's annoy let's, everybody let's else in the room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's tough too because I feel like there's such a emotional sensitivity sometimes. Like sometimes it's no big deal. Yeah. But when they're intentionally doing it, you're like, oh, yeah. you bastards. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's actually an evolutionary argument for that, which is that um, being excluded from the group is something that we are terrified. Oh, I agree. At a very deep level, you know. I agree. Because in a hunter-gatherer context, if you're kicked out of the group, you're as good as dead, right? You need yeah. you need everyone. So that's why, and and this is one of the arguments I'm I'm revisiting in in civilized to death. This idea 
that you read in Dawkins and Pinker and all these guys who have this Hobbesian vision. Uh, you know, they they talk about selfishness being this intrinsic human quality, and it's yeah. the basis of economics, of modern economics, right? Economic man is someone who's constantly trying to maximize his own benefit and doesn't give a fuck about everyone else. Right. But the problem with that is that ain't how it works, because a dude like that in a hunter-gatherer uh, tribe or, or band gets kicked the fuck out. And oh, also, everybody's armed. Right. Everybody knows how yeah. to shoot. So I don't care how big and strong you are. If you're an asshole, you're going to get an arrow in the back or you're going to get kicked out of the band. So this sort of uh, what do they call it? The uh, the lazy um, opportunist or something like that is is not something that you find in hunter gatherer bands precisely right. because the mechanisms are so powerful to prevent it. Right. How the hell did I get off that? Oh, no. oh, the exclusion, social yeah. exclusion is yeah. something that we're terrified of. And you see it in kids, right? I mean, constantly you're in or you're out and you're not cool and you're gay and you're this yeah. and whatever it is that makes you different. That's especially the worst time to experience those emotions, too. Yeah. Like right when you're in that like late elementary, early junior high, you're trying to high find school, your trying identity. to figure out what's going on. Yeah. That's when like I think some of the meanest people yeah. are like 14 years old. Yeah. Because they can say some of just the snarkiest, it's true. meanest things. It's true. I just, um, this today, this morning, I was working on a podcast that's going out Monday. So people listening to this, it'll be in the archives uh, with um, Murphy, who's uh, 13 and a half. About 13 and a half, yeah. he said. <laughs> and I was thinking about that very thing when I was listening to our conversation. Like, you know, how cool it is. For a 13, 14-year-old to be friendly and kind yeah. and accepting of eccentricity yeah. and to have perspective, you know, because that's the kind of kid who can, you know, when he sees somebody getting hurt, he'll have the perspective to help him out, you know. Yeah, which absolutely. Is, that's big. That's all. That's so much of it is parenting, though. That's Well, yeah, it is parenting. In his case, his parents are really cool, but... Um, yeah, I I don't know what I mean. I I moved around a lot as a kid. Yeah, you know, and uh, and some of the people who reached out to sort of take care of me had fucked up parents, and they were yeah. just sensitive. Do you ever see a film called uh, Stand by Me? Oh no, is that the one with? Is the one with Macaulay Culkin? No, uh, no, no, no. It's before Macaulay Culkin. It's um, but it's it's kids. No, that's Home Alone, isn't it? Is no, that... no, no. There's another one where he's also like some sick kid. Oh no, no. Stand by Me is a really beautiful movie. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss is in it briefly, um, but it's it's based on a short story by Stephen King. It's about these. Uh, I think it's four boys who are thirteen, fourteen years old who. Um, find a body out by the railroad tracks. Yeah. And so it is a Stephen King book, right? Yeah. That's the one with that famous leech scene, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? I don't about? remember. Maybe I'm sure whoever's listening to this would understand. Yeah, there's like a scene where they're in the water and like oh. one guy opens up his pants. Oh, really? And he has a leech on his wiener. Uh, yeah. Yeah, That's that famous, sounds like that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, it's a really good movie. It's, it's fantastic because it's about that... Uh, that that world you're in when you're that age where the kid who's cool, who's the leader, who's yeah. the one who's taking care of the other kids has the perspective to see that it's not always going to be like this and that like he's in his moment, but that kid's going to go on to college and yeah. 
you know, have a career and and da da da, and I'm going to be stuck in this shitty little town. You know, it's kind of a Huck Finn. You ever read Huck Finn? I have not. What the fuck? I know. Canadian, oh, man. Canadian. 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 Grew up fucking Asian Canadian in the suburbs of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. All right. So, so before we, get, you know, veer off into movies and books, let's uh, talk about why, why you're here. You're. You're a very interesting guy personally. Your parents are from Mongolia. Is so that... they're from Inner Mongolia. Inner Mongolia. So that's like a northern province in China that's traditionally ethnically Mongolian. So you're like a yak herding motherfucker? Is that yeah. So it's lamb, lamb, and more lamb. A lot of lamb. It's no yak. Lamb. You don't no get yak. yak. It's pure lamb. It's probably like the diet that everything, everything, I don't, I don't bread really and like butter, lamb. man. Lamb's a little too gamey for me yeah. personally. Yeah. And so there's a couple of things that they make that's really good. They make like hot pot, which is like, uh, well, the new way to do it is just to have an electric burner. But the old way to do it would be like this funnel shaped thing where you have coals at the bottom. And there's a lot of winners out there where my dad was like on the winner of Canada, just like fanning. Just like, like, <laughs> really? Like, yeah. Yeah. He like loved that thing. He brought it back from China. Oh, that's like, cool. Um, so is it looks like a tagine. Do you know that? The Moroccan thing? I think so. It's like a cone. It's like a like cone, a exactly. Ceramic cone. Exactly. Instead of a ceramic cone, it's just like a metal cone. Oh. And then on the middle part of it is basically a ring that's outside. That's oh, kind of a I, tubular I've had ring. That. Yeah. I had that in in Vietnam. I think. Yeah, it's pretty common design. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, and so you take the stuff from the moat and you sort of put it on yeah. the cone and it cooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Yeah, I that's like awesome. That. Yeah, I like in Vietnam. There are a lot of those things where they bring like a little barbecue to your table or, oh, or that yeah, hot pot, exactly. and you cook the stuff at the table. Exactly. It's really communal. Yeah, it's, it's nice. I mean, I think that's the big aspect of it. Is yeah. It's communal. So, so how old were you when you left in oh, Mongolia? So I was super young. I was like five, and we went straight to Canada. Do you remember anything from? I you do. Left? There's actually kind of crazy. I mean, I think we can all kind of relate to it, but there's just these flashes of images and yeah. feelings and emotions that I have towards that period of time. And then the older I get, the less I'm sure that they're real. But I'm like, yeah. I feel them. Um, but I definitely remember it. So what happened was like my mom was a graduate student. And so she went to Canada early. And then eventually my dad and I kind of joined her. But while we were in China, my dad was working around a lot. So I was staying with my grandma a lot um, in like the our ancestral home, which is like so we live in a city now. Most of my relatives do. But they lived in like a northern like the ancestral homes from like a more northern kind of rural place. Right. Um, now, is this is this politically part of China or this it's is politically a, part of China? Right, so outer Mongolia is a separate country. Yeah, okay. exactly. Right. And the inner Mongolia is so I think that the statistics have changed, but I think with the like so kind of the population and the kind of the movement and the government policies in China have always been to kind of introduce like people of Han origin yeah. to Dil- the, dilute the exactly. Minority, so I think yeah. now it's something like eighteen percent is Mongolian in Inner right. Mongolia, right? So and so are you like genetically? Are you uh, descended from like the Genghis Khan and those dudes? Yeah. So the apparently horsemen? I am. Yeah, yeah. Apparently I am. So it's like the the on my father's side more specifically, the lineage is supposed to be like relatively straight from like the, like the Genghis Khan kind of lineage, right? And it's because of the. There's a bunch of stuff to it. I wish I knew more about it. But my grandfather was kind of a historian of sorts in his own mm. right. And he kind of kept like a lot of the genealogy. Really? So it's more so like on my 
father's half and then on my mom's mother's side. Are, She's are racially Mongolian as They're, well. They both are. They uh, both right, are. Right. So, but to be honest, it's like, uh, it's tough because that's exactly what's happening. The dilution that you're talking about. Yeah. It's, you know, with every generation, people forget their, like I apparently spoke beautiful Mongolian. Really? When I was like three. Not, I don't remember a single word. Not even like hello. And if you goodbye, listen to it, it doesn't sound nothing. It's yeah. not even. Do your parents speak Mongolian? To so each my other? mom does, and yeah. she speaks with my grandmother. But then my father is like doesn't really speak very much. Right. So, and is it a is it a written language? It is a written language. So from <laughs> most of what I know is based on like a seventh grade homework project that I had, right. where I researched like oh, right. the, the Khan and That's all that cool. stuff. That's cool. But a lot yeah. of it was the written language was actually like I think as <laughs> I know, dude. It's that's funny the, how that works. I, I'm the same. I didn't know shit about the potato famine until until you look you know, it up, and then and it's like, get, oh, that explains my entire life. You know, yeah. fuck yeah. So what they did was, I think it's. Uh, so the alphabet that's used in Outer Mongolia is like the more modern one, and that's like a Cyrillic one that looks uh, like a Russian, like right. you know, with the backwards R and all that kind of right. stuff. And then the Inner Mongolia still keep, like they still use the traditional, like one from back in like Genghis Khan's time. And then what I think he did was he had actually because he had conquered all those different lands, yeah, and he had kind of amalgamated a lot of the different scholars and engineers and. Right religions and all those kinds of things and one of the things he did was i think he had an arabic scholar craft the mongolian written language ah. and so the mongolian written language actually kind of looks like arabic but vertical whereas right. the arabic's you know kind of horizontal language right so if you go to inner mongolia to this day it's like bilingual signs everywhere really yeah mm, interesting yeah yeah that must be kind of fucked if if it's by the signs are bilingual and one language is vertical and the other is horizontal. You get big ass. Signs. Well, but Chinese is vertical too, though. Oh, okay. Right, so, so they're both. Yeah, yeah it works. It works. It's only if you start doing the front to back page thing that, uh, that would become yeah. disastrous. You know? Uh, do you know why um, Hebrew is written right to left? And English and other modern languages are all left to right. No, this, I love shit like this. It's because you know most people are right-handed and, yeah. and always have been, right? Most chimps are right-handed. Yeah. Um, so the deal is, when they were writing Hebrew, they were writing on stone tablets. So they would hold okay. the chisel in the left hand and hammer with the right hand, so it went right went, to left. Right, right, right. But then the modern languages, they already had pens, with so they're paper. pulling instead of pushing. That's left awesome. To right. That, that totally makes sense. Yeah, that's stuff amazing. Like that. That's like how, awesome. How the tool that's available creates like like the thing we notice and oh, we forget absolutely. about the tool. You know, it's like it's, the mold that falls away. It's not that long ago. I mean, the funny thing is, is so I've been listening to Dan Carlin. I was going to ask you about him. Yeah, yeah. His Dan stuff Carlin's on the, the awesome. Mongols is amazing. It's awesome. It's yeah. awesome. I just that's, had him on the podcast. Did you? Yeah, like that's awesome. Two weeks ago, was, I'm listening yeah. to the stuff he's doing on World War One right now, uh-huh. and I think. For people of like, so my generation, so grew up in like the born in the 80s kind of deal. Mm. I think it's, we don't, for us, it was just this like historical relic that we learned in school, right? Because we didn't have to deal with any of the real like immediate consequences of World War One, let alone World War Two. Yeah, man. When I was a kid, World War One was all over the place. Yeah, but that's the thing. What do you like, mean, yeah? No, I mean, dude. What do you mean, yeah? I'm not back that in the old. Day, what right? the fuck are you back talking about? Day, right? <laughs> I was joking, you young punk. So, I was born in the 60s. 
All right, so that was 50 years after World but you, War One. But you were still, were you in the Cold War? Like, was that still oh, kind Cold of Oh, Cold War, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Soviet Union, the Russians. Yeah, the, you know, Cuban the, Missile Crisis oh, and all yeah. that stuff. It's true. It's true. It, it, it's weird. I mean, you just said you were born in the 80s, right? I was in college in the 80s. I yeah. was getting laid in the 80s. I could be your dad. Yeah. If I had ever had sex with a Mongolian, which I don't think I did, <laughs> I could be your dad. That's amazing. Um, yeah, there's one, one change, box man. left to check, huh? Yeah, yeah. times change. Thank God. Yeah. Tibetans, the Tibetans don't count. They're kind, <laughs> I think they're kind of similar to us, actually. Yeah. I no, definitely. They're kind of similar to and us. And beautiful women. Oh, my God. Yeah. When, when I was in Nepal and India, I was in areas where there were a lot of Tibetans. And uh, the women are just so... Um, yeah strong there's a fierceness to them yeah that is a wildness and but it also just a beauty the eyes and the cheeks and i mean like the the rosy cheeks yeah like the wind burnt face and all that right yeah that's i think what i think so when my wife visited china a couple years ago i think she was expecting to meet the female like my female relatives and so i think that for better or for worse like a lot of uh, the traditional views of like Chinese women is rather like more submissive, you yeah. know, kind of more docile. Right. And so I think she was completely thrown for a curve when she met like my aunts who were like <laughs> swearing, yeah. drinking, singing, like, yeah. you know, yelling back and forth with my my uncles and, you know, giving them shit and not letting them get yeah. away with anything. It was awesome. Well, I mean, you know, as we've established, if you're descended from the ass kickers that were the, yeah. you know, the Mongolian hordes who just fucking took over, like yeah. everywhere they could go, they're just like, fuck you guys, we're in charge. Did you yeah. listen to Dan Carlin's thing? It's on awesome. Yeah. Holy that's, shit. that's a, that's a, that's a, you have to have multiple road trips to yeah. really go through that entire thing yeah well cassie and i listened to it we were driving down to san francisco and back so we we did the whole five episodes down and back and wow yeah that was uh there's awesome a lot of a lot of raping and pillaging going on there was a lot of raping and pillaging going on that was kind of the (laughs) shtick back in the day (laughs) it's it's what we do it's just our thing man you know ride of horses (laughs) yeah yeah um, okay, so anyway, so you're, you're five years old, and, yeah. and now how is it that your parents managed to get the fuck out of China? Because that's not easy. Did they Academics. just... So Academics. So they're like, oh, we're going to study, we'll be back, and then... Yeah, and then peace out, yeah. yeah so, out. yeah. It was right. my mom. It was my mom. She yeah. was, and to this day, is a really strong lady, and I mean, she'll tell you stuff. Like, she was just really peripherally aware of the fact that there was this. I mean, this is a story that I think a lot of immigrants and a lot of first-generation kids kind of relate to. But, I mean, your parents are peripherally aware that there might be better opportunities elsewhere. Yeah. And she said stuff like, you know, like a TV. Like, that would never be within our reach in China right. at that time. I mean, right. nowadays, it's completely 180. Yeah. China is like this megalith. Yeah, but still, the ethnic minorities are treated like shit in China, yeah. from what I understand. It's true. It's true. Uh, so it's still, even though China itself is booming... A lot of people are being left behind. Totally, totally. Yeah. So and you've so, been back to China, though. So I have. I so have. Are, your parents aren't on a like a no fly list. No, or something? no, 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 no. It's not like that. It's like what happened was the vast majority of Asian Canadians become citizens. And, I mean, so the Asian immigrants in Canada become citizens, and citizenship in Canada is, I think, less of an ordeal than it is in like the United States. Yeah. Um, and so, especially because I think Canada was really open to scholars and entrepreneurs and that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. What What was your mother studying? So she was an engineer. Uh. So. 
And so she was doing a lot of engineering work. And so the story goes, eventually she gets set up there and then she kind of brings me and my father over. And my dad was an engineer too. So, um, and then, so they kind of just did their thing. And then I literally had gone to like kindergarten, got my ass kicked in Chinese kindergarten, which was like essentially be there at like 5.30, 6 a.m. in the morning, doing calisthenics at 6.30, doing math, doing like all this stuff. I went from that to like Canadian kindergarten where like <laughs> kids were getting juice and taking naps. Oh boy. And I was like, and what is this nap thing? And you're like, the ass kicker now. Yeah, I was just like, this, like, this is soft, man. Like, you know, communist regime, like, you know, you're hardened, you're like a machine, and then you go and there's just little uh, kids like picking their nose and like... <laughs> like sleeping and playing with Ninja Turtles. And you're like, this is awesome. I, I can coast for like another yeah. five years. <laughs> another, and then my math knowledge will kind of pick up. In the, years. Yeah, in like the sixth grade. So, yeah. And where is that, Toronto? Edmonton. Edmonton. Yeah, Al- it's Alberta. pretty darn cold. Yeah, Edmonton's like plains, right? Great plains. It's like prairies, yeah. yeah. There's like a river valley that kind of, of bisects through it. Yeah. And then it's uh, it's pretty north. It's about as north as you can get. Not dissimilar to Mongolia. Yeah. Yeah, and you could get some yaks going up there. You can get a little <laughs> sheep going out there too. <laughs> Definitely. So it's yeah. it's gnarly. Yeah. All right. So you grew up there, and uh, you decided not to become an engineer. No, I know. Family it took a while. Business. Do you have siblings? I don't. So, I was kind of of that generation oh boy, of the one child, child policy. You're the one child policy. Wow. Yeah. The vast majority of all of like pretty much all of my friends from China at that time, whether they were born in. Um, China at that time, or they're like now in the United States or Canada, they're right. all single children. And if they have siblings, it's like 15 years later right. when their parents got settled in America and they're like, right. let's do this. <laughs> and probably mostly boys. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the funny thing is, is that that's like back in the day, you know, that was like the commodity. But nowadays... It still is, bro. No, not anymore, man. China in now, China, it's like really? China. There's a Vice that is a crazy documentary about it where like the there's like 50 million extra men oh yeah no, women. i saw that and they're trying to import them from the philippines and if you have a daughter yeah. that's like that's like the jackpot so uh-huh. and i have one female cousin and she's like i mean you know it's like one female cousin like nine or ten male cousins right yeah it's going to be interesting to see what happens with all those surplus males history yeah. if history is any guide it's not going to be beautiful no, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, cultures that have lots of surplus males tend to go to war. Ugh, I believe it. Send them off to you know fight and die somewhere. I believe it. They're extra. What are you? It's going to be curious to see where Chinese culture heads because I think the amount of change it's seen in like the last ten years is like it's just so different. I mean, when I went back in I think two thousand, two thousand three, two thousand four. And the amount of change that that happened from like 2004 to like probably 2008, and then from 2008 to 2012 mm. has just been staggering. Like, I remember in 2008, you'd walk down the street, and the only cars you would see were government cars, right? So, right. like, Audi has a factory in Shanghai, and it's kind of owned by Volkswagen. So, all you would see are Volkswagens and Audis. And now it's just the average, like, no, there are only government officials that would be in those cars. Yeah. And we went, when we went back in 2012, that was, like, just everybody had a car. There's all these, like, wealthy kind of entrepreneurs that kind of got in with the government connection that are just driving their Land Rovers. And, like, it just completely changed from, yeah. like, barely making it 
buy to just this hyper-capitalistic consumerist culture? Yeah. You know, I've never been tempted to go to China. It's one of the only... Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in just about every place, but China is the one place that, you know, when I was in Asia, especially yeah. the first time and I met a lot of people who were in Nepal who were going over into yeah. Tibet and down into China and stuff, and um, it just... The stories I heard were, the themes of the stories were um, that uh, it was a huge pain in the ass, yeah. the bureaucracy. Like yeah. you'd go to a hotel and yeah. they'd say, sorry, no rooms, you know, because you're a foreigner. And yeah. it's just like for them to have a foreigner in their hotel is such a headache. Like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Everyone's saying no. And um, a lot of like corruption, crazy corruption, dirty as, as shit, like the food was really dirty yeah. and people getting sick, you know, and then they're fucking over the Tibetans and the, you yeah. know, and it just was like, wow, that, that doesn't sound like a place I, I want to I mean, there's go. gems in there, but it's yeah. the reason to go would be to really appreciate the age of the culture because it's just yeah. so old. I mean, just yeah. like you can go to any big city and. You know, that wall right there is like 4,000 years old or 3,000 years old. Yeah, you know, the ones that they haven't that are still. Down yeah, exactly, exactly. Years. So, yeah. there's an, and you can feel it in the air. Like, you can feel it when you get there. Like, this is an old place. And, I mean, and it's like the ancestral kind of bed for all these other cultures, all yeah. the other Asian cultures yeah. that have kind of spawned from it. So, you're right. Like, if you can kind of, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, like, and really get into the gems, it's, it's great. And being able to kind of especially go to those like kind of the more like ancestral like yeah you know so i mean there's a lot of yeah the historical stuff is there yeah no i would love to do that and i also i love the aesthetic you know the it's the old temples and all that kind of stuff um when i was teaching english i was always getting job offers to go to china you know it was always like you get an apartment you get a car and driver you get all this stuff and it's like oh that sounds great and then you realize well the reason you have a car and driver is that they watch everywhere you go yeah, you know, like you're completely yeah. controlled. But even that would have been an interesting experience. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm so bad linguistically that I was like, I'll never learn Mandarin. They're different now too, though. Like there is, it's. I think if you go to any of the big cities now in China, like there, so there's a guy in Canada that was, uh, he's like a celebrity now in China because he was the first foreigner to like to publicly be known as having completely mastered the language of mm. Chinese. And his name is like Mark something. He's Canadian. And he actually was friends with a really good childhood friend of mine's mom, who was like also a Chinese linguistics teacher. And this guy um, had just like, I think I heard it like this documentary about him, but he basically just started taking community classes because he was kind of peripherally interested in Mandarin. But he started getting pretty good at it and then kind of had gone over to China and is so it became actually perfectly fluent. And then there's this old form of like theater. It's almost like a, it's almost like the you know when you have those two guys like who's on first, who's on second, right. like that kind of thing. Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. yeah. So there's this act that's kind of like that in China, but it's this one that's like hundreds of years old, and it's all based on intonation. Uh, and that's yeah. kind of like the basis of the Chinese language. It's tonal language. And yeah. so all the subtle puns are based on just these little dippy-doos in the intonation. He actually is the first foreign master of this art form. Yeah. And so he's now this, like, famous celebrity in China. Like, his, <laughs> he has, he's just, like, on car commercials, like, soda commercials. He's, like, that's Michael funny. Jordan in China pretty much right now. <laughs> so times are changing. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I, I, I met a guy years ago in Nepal, actually, the first time, I, well, I've only been in Nepal once, the, the only time I've been in Nepal, which was like, 
89, I guess, or 87, somewhere in there. Anyway, he was, um, I met him, I, I was in Pokhara in western Nepal, and I went into this cafe that I used to hang out in, and there was this dude there. He was probably in his 50s. He had this big mustache. He's a white guy, tattoos all over and stuff, kind of gnarly looking dude. And, um, you know, he said hello, and I sat down, we started talking. And then I ended up hanging out with him every morning for like two weeks and got to know him quite well. His name was Captain Dan. At least that's how I remember him. Right on. Captain Dan. And he was married to an Indian woman named Shaku, Captain Dan and Shaku. Wow. Anyway, Captain Dan, sort of similar situation to that. Captain Dan's story was that he was from a family of uh, mercenaries. And, uh, Crazy. Yeah, he had sort of, you know, his father's grandfather, all these famous British soldiers. And uh, Captain Dan joined the army and, and fought, then later fought as a, a private soldier and oh, right, for hire. Okay. And he, he was in um, Northern Ireland and uh, Rhodesia. This is in the seventies, I guess, and then um, or sixties, and then he was um, hired by the Americans or some American company to fly a helicopter in Vietnam. So he's flying this helicopter in Vietnam, like shooting people from the air. And um, one night he took some acid and had this like mind blowing trip. Wandered off, found the the helicopter while he's still high. Jumps in the helicopter, flies into Cambodia. Crazy. As far as he can get with whatever fuel's in it. Yeah. Ditches the helicopter and starts walking. He's like, I can't do it anymore. I'm fucking done, right? Yeah. So he walks, he gets into Thailand, and this is Vietnam War raging, so it's early 70s at the latest. And um, somehow he gets to India. And in the meantime, he's written to his family, and they know what he's done. They've disowned him. They don't want to hear from him ever again. Right. He's shamed the right, family. Right. The Americans are looking for him because he stole a fucking helicopter yeah, and dropped, deserted. Yeah, you know? exactly, deserted. So he's like fucked in every possible way you can be fucked, but he's alive. And he gets to India and, uh, you know, he's got tattoos. Like he's got, I remember he had love on one, you know, hand right. and hate on the other and his fists, <laughs> you know, and he's got like cobras and right, shit. And right, right, right. And so he gets to India, and he doesn't have a job, doesn't know people, fucked, but it's like hippie 70s you yeah. know, scene. And he ends up, it turns out that in you know India makes more movies than any place, right? Bollywood right. and all that. So in these Indian movies, often there's a scary, horrible white guy who chases the girls around. He's right. like the rapist who jumps out of the bushes, right? right. Which re- is a reference to the British colonialism right. and all that, right? And then the hero punches him in the exactly. face and then it breaks yeah. out the and song they and all dance. dance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So Captain Dan ends up getting a, a gig in a movie. Right on. And he's so fucking scary looking that he... He gradually becomes this star of Indian cinema, right? right? So he's so he's like recovered his life. Now he's making bank, and he's on you know in all these movies, and everyone recognizes him. So he goes to dinner one night at um, at the home of a brigadier general of the Indian Army, right? Some real big shot. So he's there. I guess you know it's the crew or the or the stars of the cast of a movie or whatever. And the general's daughter walks in. And he looks at her. She's like 19, I think. Yeah. And they fall in love. Yeah. Right? Boom. They're in love. 
So after the dinner, he sneaks back onto the property and he's like tossing pebbles to her window right. and she crawls out and all this stuff. So they decide they're going to get married. Now, a white dude and an Indian woman, especially upper yeah. class, forget about it. Came over. So, but she says, fuck it. I don't care. I'm running away with him. She runs away with him. Her family disowns her. He gets kicked out. He can't work anymore yeah. because now he's persona non grata in India. And they end up wandering India together, the two of them, for about seven years when I met them. Um, wow. And they were in Nepal. There was some film shooting in Nepal. He was trying to get a job. You know, it, it was. So he tells me all these amazing stories. Um, so the UPS guy just interrupted yeah. me. <laughs> right at the, like, <laughs> fucking UPS, climax dude. of your story. Uh Anyway, what the fuck? What the fuck was I talking about? So he was in Nepal, and is it a movie shoot? Right. Yeah. So so when I met him, things were kind of on a downswing. Right. But but he told me all these amazing stories. Now I'm thinking, like maybe ten percent of this bullshit's true, yeah. right? Because he's a little British dude, you know, yeah. likes to talk and 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 he was cool. He was charming, and but I did get to know uh, Shaku and. Um, she never contradicted anything. And, you know, when he was telling the story, she was never looking at him like, come on, yeah, that's bullshit. Exactly. I remember they told me the story about the two of them hiking in the Himalayas. They just wandered from village to village yeah. and all these crazy, like, so they're, they're walking through the Himalayas and uh, in Kashmir and um, a snowstorm blows up out of nowhere. So they find like a little cave and they hunker down in this cave and it just keeps snowing and snowing and snowing. And they build a little fire and, and so they're surviving, but four days later, it's yeah. they're still there, and crazy. they're starving, and uh, they decide they have to eat their dog. Oh snap! Okay, and he can't do it. The big soldier boy, he can't do it. So the yeah. Indian woman kills. Mostly the just dog. went right for it. Yeah, she she kills the fucking dog. And, yeah. and roasts it. You know, and that, so I remember him telling me that story and her looking in the fire, and it's like again, that was true. You know. Yeah. He told me another story about uh, when they were going through a village and uh, they were walking along a river and the people attacked them and started throwing stones at them because there are all these stones along yeah. the riverbank. Why they attack them? Because they knew who they were? No, because it's a Indian woman with a white guy. Oh, geez. Okay. You know, she's a whore. She's yeah. disrespecting the culture and everything. I got that all the time. Did with you? Traveling with Casilda. In really? India. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so they threw stones at him, and they, they only escaped by jumping in the river and floating down, you know, getting away that way. So they went to the police. Now, Shaku is essentially homeless, but remember, she's the daughter of a general. So yeah. her accent, her bearing, everything about her says upper class. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I know people. So it's got to be confusing for authorities because, like, yeah. okay, you're like a homeless wanderer, but everything I'm hearing tells me... Like you're a general's daughter. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So anyway, they go to the police. She fucking lays into the police, tells them what happened. And the police take them back to the village. They round up all the people in the village. And they say, well, you know, which, should we find them? Or who should we take to prison? What should we do? And she says, no, get them all in a line. I want every person in this village to kiss our feet. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so the two they of do them it? sit there. Yeah. Oh, the two of them sit there. That's And every awesome. person in the village has to file by and kiss their feet. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. That's a bold move. Yeah, and it's a, it's a move that makes sense in the culture, right? Yeah. But if you're an outsider, you'd never think of that. No, know? not at all. Yeah. 
Crazy. Anyway, so that's enough of my stories. Uh, you just reminded I hadn't thought of Captain Dan and Shaku in a long wow, time. I love hearing your stories, man. Yeah, they're awesome. They're, they're, they were great. They were really interesting. I've got. I'll, I'll put a picture of them on the on this page. On yeah, you know, on, absolutely. So anyone who wants to see what they look like, absolutely, I'll check um, it out. Yeah. So uh, so what the fuck are we talking about? You're oh Chinese, yeah, Mongolian, growing up. Yeah, growing up. Much. So oh no siblings and and so what you decided to become a doctor. Yeah, how so that that was, that was kind of. How just, old are you? Wait a minute, you're. I'm thirty one. Thirty one. All yeah. right. So just barely an adult, as far barely as an adult. You know, in, in medieval hair, Europe, just about to sprout. Yeah, you're Asian, dude. You no, get away from that. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'm in Portland. It's a bad place to be. <laughs> I love these, like the Asian beards. You yeah, know, it's that's just a little flimsy. Well, once in a while, you get a guy you. who can grow something, though. Oh yeah, and they like David Suzuki. I guess he's yeah. Japanese, but he's, he's got he's got a pretty good. Beard, yeah. yeah, I remember I was in Singapore. I was taking a taxi from the airport, and there was this Asian guy who. Um, he had one of those mole beards, you know, he had a mole yeah. on the left side of his and, chin and yeah. there were like five yeah. hairs growing out of it. And those things must have been a foot long. You oh, know, he was like tending, tending to that. And I remember we're driving along and I noticed the beard when I got in the car or the, the whatever it was. Yeah. I don't know if you and uh, and he was smoking. His, he lit up a cigarette and then he uh, put his window down a little bit just so the smoke would go out. And the the mole beard like pulled up and was fluttering out the the, the crack in the window. Gross. Yeah, that's then, hilarious. And there was electric window, and then he like put the window up, and it caught the mole beard. But he didn't know, right? So I was sitting there like panicking, like, should I tell him? Because if I say anything, he's going to turn, and that'll rip his mole beard out. So I couldn't say anything. I was just like watching, like, oh my god, what's going to happen? That's hilarious. And he, he felt it. I guess it happened. That's hilarious. A lot, yeah. That's an interesting thing, though. Like, I wonder why. I mean. <laughs> Mole beards excluded, like how certain Asian men are able to grow like such illustrious beards when yeah. like ninety nine percent of us don't have anything. It's got to so, be some genetic, yeah, exactly, from right? Some invading, exactly, like some northern something or another. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, talking about Chinese history, there's all this, uh, you know, na- uh, naval history or you know, yeah. nautical history yeah. that. Uh, very few people know about in the West. I know very little. All, all I know is that there's a lot I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I know they were all over the Pacific and they had huge fleets of uh, ships going all over the place. And yeah. So there's a lot of uh, genetic mix. There is. You know? There is. Especially yeah. that area, too. I mean, yeah. it's kind of the home bed for everybody. Yeah. So exactly. So yeah, what you were saying, doctor, how, why, when and why? Kind of just figured it out later on. So I was an engineer. Um, I kind of just, I think, was an engineer in part because I was trying to, like, put you, off decision-making. So you studied engineering I did. It was, like, biomedical. Or? Yeah. So oh. I went to the University of Pennsylvania out in oh, Philadelphia right. Um, right out of high school. And then kind of just, I think what it was was ultimately it was just a thing to be doing right. and kind of while I was kind of assessing things. Um, and then I actually did, like, an MD and a PhD. And so I had the PhD, like, right in the middle of my medical school career. And that was so probably... So I have to call you Dr. Doctor? I, Dr. I doctor, mean, You're like right? a double doctor. Concur, concur, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, what, kind of, of, what kind of engineering were you studying? I was a biomedical engineer. Biomedical engineering. Yeah. What the fuck is that? I th- you know, it is such a catch-all term at this point. Is it like designing like heart artificial valves and stuff? Ba- that's part of it. Right. I mean, it's like... 
Essentially, anytime you have medicine, biology, and some element of physics intersecting, right. that could be classified as biomedical engineering. So, so you're going to be really rich someday. I don't think so. Because that's, that's the place where you... Well, it forget is. about current rate, man. Yeah. You're 30. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, though, it's like, it's yes and no. I mean, in terms of actually getting anything off the ground, I think once you start kind of doing... Re- I mean, you're a researcher, too. You see the pace of research. It's like, yeah. you know... You hear about these things in the news all the time, like this discovery, that discovery. People don't realize a lot of those discoveries were like the culmination of somebody's like 20 years period of work. And then of those kind of studies, this like 2% of them or 1% of them ever have a chance at actually producing anything that's actually like economically viable and not just an intellectual kind of. But see, I think academia is not the way to go about it. I, I don't think if so you either. Have, if you have a talent for you know biomedical engineering, for example, yeah. and you're working as you are now, yeah. we'll get to this in uh, in a medical context. All what you need to be doing, as I'm sure you are doing, is just sort of notice what's missing. Yeah, you know, look, yeah. come at it with fresh eyes. Notice, like, man, if you know, if this thing were tweaked a little differently, it wouldn't Absolutely. get dirty, and people wouldn't be getting these infections, Absolutely. or this could self cleanse, or this could be smoother yeah. around the edge instead of a. That's right all angle. that is. That's all that is. And for better or for worse, yeah. the healthcare industry in this country is such a lucrative. Simultaneously, it's like such a money sink, but it's also this crazy money generator, yeah. and the people who kind of make their millions of the people who find like literally there's this thing that we use called like dermabond in the, in the emergency department and it's just literally super glue yeah and you know but it's medical super glue so right. it's like 20 bucks a pop as right. opposed to the five dollars you pay for a full stick of super glue you get this itty bitty little stick that's sterile and all this other stuff so it's just upmarking a lot of things and it's just kind of finding the niche yeah. so i don't know it's one of those things where i think for the, to develop things like that involves just a lot of time. And I think yeah. as you get older, you kind of realize, I don't know, I think the academia thing made me really realize just how much, like it's there if you want to do it. But then, you know, if, I think a lot of people are in the same boat. We've given so much of our lives to our academic careers, to medicine. I mean, medicine is basically this black hole that takes and takes and takes in the sense of your commitment and your time. And I think a lot of people now are kind of going the the opposite direction where they say, what can I do to reduce the amount of commitments I have? Mm -hmm. Because those days are gone where you hear like the stories of the old surgeons that would like sleep under the operating table because that was the thing to do. And it was at that one point in time, a decision of whether or not you had a family or you had a career, but you couldn't have both. And I think more and more people are kind of moving away from that because it's such an unpalatable kind of decision for so many young people now. Like that just, nobody wants to do that anymore. Do you think part of that is that the sort of heroic luster of medicine and particularly surgery has corroded and people don't look at doctors the way they used to? Yeah. I mean, and I think just what it means to be a doctor is so dramatically different now. And it's like, there's just so much bureaucracy and administration that you have to navigate and, how effective are you really? And I mean, and we were talking about this before you and I and about, you know, in order for somebody to really change and make any advancement in their health requires a deep personal level of commitment to change and, you know, to kind of move in the right direction and having 15 minutes to see somebody in an office. I mean, every year, like you can only do so much, you know? Yeah. So, and I think a lot of times it's kind of the fault 
not necessarily the fault, but the onus is not on just the healthcare system, but on the individual too. You know, I mean, like, it's just very difficult expectations to kind of fulfill if somebody expects you to be, you know, their savior, so to speak. I don't think that's the relationship anymore. I think a co-ownership is kind of the new model for people to adopt. Yeah, and the third uh, entity in the room is the culture. You know, you've got the doctor, the patient, and then you've got a culture. And I'm sure a lot of times you find yourself struggling against the culture because oh, absolutely you know i mean just look at this stuff with fat i know yeah. you're into paleo you're, yeah you know, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you have a critical uh, approach to a lot of this stuff you know it's like the culture's been telling people low fat low fat low fat yeah ignore the sugar content just focus on yeah. the low fat that's bullshit people have known it was bullshit for yeah. a long time and so here you are saying to a, a patient like eh, honestly the low fat isn't really a net gain for you yeah. and the patient's like are you kidding me like everywhere around me i'm being told you know all these signs all these Absolutely. labels everything's telling me but that's like yeah. even the culture aspect of it i mean there's two elements to that too right there's the medical culture which is evolving mm-hmm. and which is and at certain parts of it, kind of an older culture that's built a lot of like, a lot of the medical culture is actually built on like the military, especially in surgery. And it's built on personal practices rather than like medicine's kind of shifting now towards, or at least certain fields in medicine are shifting towards what we call evidence-based medicine, where it's basically like, why are you doing that? Where's the evidence behind that? Whereas in the past it was more like, well, my teacher told me to do it this way and that's why you're going to do it this way. Um, but I think that's only a small part of the culture or the cultural aspect of it. The other cultural aspect of it is, is like the American culture that these people are walking into the instant they leave the hospital, you know, like the, or the office. And that's what you were talking about before, too. Like, you know, most people, even if they want, like how many people even eat low fat? The vast majority of people go out, drink a couple of beers, get a McDonald's, you know, get a Bud Light, watch the football game on Sundays, like... That's the culture that's being yeah. like spewed to them every single day. So for them to really go against that is the first step. And then it's even trickier because then the medical culture still has our own limitations. Yeah. It's a very it's like a minefield and it's like a maze that requires a lot of critical thinking in order to be able to navigate and Yeah, exactly. And you're as you you mentioned, you're in a situation where you have very little time because it's it's so demanding every time that, you know, it takes time to think these things through and do your own research and question what you've been told. You ever see a TV show called the uh, what's it called? The 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 Nick. No. Oh, it's really good. It's it's um, the Knickerbocker. Um, was um, a hospital in Manhattan. Yeah. In the, I guess this show is set probably in the 1870s, okay. 80s, somewhere in there. Okay. It's really good. It's uh, the, the star is um, a movie star. Uh, uh, I can't remember his name, but you'd recognize him from movies. It's, it's a fantastic TV show. Casilda, you know, my wife is yeah. a doctor, and she yeah. loves watching the show because it shows what medicine was like then. Yeah. You know, and he's a surgeon. And they're like developing some surgical techniques that are still in use today. And, yeah. you know, and everyone's dying and they don't know why. And they're trying yeah. different things. And you see how brutal, like the roots of medicine are just oh, absolutely. brutal. You know, absolutely. the only Portuguese to ever win a Nobel Prize in medicine. Do you know what he did? No. Frontal lobotomy. Oh. 
That worked out well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that and Obama winning one for peace, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's, Come on, Nobel that's another committee. minefield right there. <laughs> no. So, all right, so you're studying biomedical engineering yeah. at Penn. Yeah. Great school, yeah. shitty awesome town. Awesome school. Good city. I like it. I like <laughs> yeah, it. Parts really? of it. It's a blue collar city. I fucking hate Philadelphia. Philly's got really charming parts to it. My brother in law still lives there. Oh, so okay. So you got to be careful. I got to be careful. <laughs> but I have. I like that city. You know, there's certain parts to it that are that yeah. are endearing. My my grandparents lived in Philadelphia. My dad grew up there, and so my my feelings about Philadelphia are all based on childhood visits to my horrible grandparents. And oh, their that'll do it for you. House. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, so I I don't I don't think there's anything about Philadelphia that I like except hoagies. Yeah, cheesesteaks, man. Cheesesteaks, cheesesteaks, yeah. Pats and Geno's. I don't know what that is. That's like the two famous. There's like that rivalry, the cheesesteaks. Oh, there's okay. a so when you go to Philly, there's like I don't even know where it is, and it's maybe West Philly or something. But there's uh, two like cheesesteak places that are kind of the long-standing institutions. Oh. And then the big thing in Philadelphia is, is which of the two you prefer because oh. one is like this really fancy schmancy like big neon lights, and it's this really like well manicured. I see. So and then the other one's uptown this, like, or downtown. Exactly. Yeah. The other one is this little kind of shack, and it's just like the sloppy cheese whiz. Right. That's just like <laughs> cheese whiz. Yeah, cheese whiz, man. <laughs> Come that's on, like man. so. That's the that's cheese that's whiz. the decision point. Everybody in Philadelphia will always tell you they have their own little right. round the corner cheesesteak place you have to go to. Yeah. So. yeah. Uh, okay. So you're so you're doing biomedical engineering, and at some point, so you finished that degree. I did finish that degree. It was unpleasant. You're but a I did. hard ass, man, dude. It was just a powered lot of through work. it. So that's a BA or a master's? It's uh, no, it was a BA. It was like a bachelor's, and it was a lot of work. I and bet. it was. It's funny because it's kind of going back to the Mongolian thing. It's like gone from my mind. Oh, like all of that kind of technical knowledge. All right. I think medicine squeezed all the last ounce of. Really? Yeah, it's gone. Pushed it out. Pushed huh? it out. <laughs> Non-existent engineering skills. Yeah. Yeah, I studied German for three years when I was a kid. And sweet. I remembered it for a while. It wasn't sweet. It was terrible. The only reason I did it was because of this Seems girl. Seems like a pretty cool language to learn, That's though. I mean, I'm, t- I'm stupid with language. I, so for me, learning any language is just... But you like, speak Spanish pretty well, right? I lived there 20 fucking years. Yeah. <laughs> That's slow and steady progress. <laughs> no, slow and no, steady progress. Not really. No, because what happened with Spanish was... I mean, it's really sad. I was there, like, when I first got there, I spoke traveler, you know, right, where's the right, bathroom right, Spanish. Right. How much, yeah. You know, because I traveled in Mexico a little. Yeah. And uh, so I get to Spain, and I lived with this Colombian guy, Rogelio, who didn't speak any English. So that was great, and I learned a lot with him. Um, and so after, like, six months, people were like, well, how long have you been here? And I said, six months. And they're yeah. like, whoa, dude, six months. Oh, your Not Spanish bad. is great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then a year, they'd be like, wow, only a year. That's good. Yeah. And then two years, they'd be like, yeah, all right, two years. And then three, four, five years, they'd be like, really? You've yeah. been here five years? <laughs> and now I say, like, you 20, peaked, you 20 years. Early. And they, yeah. they look at me like I'm, like, brain damaged. Yeah. Like, 20 years and you speak like that? Yeah, you peaked early. I, <laughs> and it was a low peak too i mean it was i didn't climb any i mountain. have it ambitions to learn i mean you know mariel is yeah. my wife is puerto rican so i'm really 
that's like a distant dream of mine is, is, you know, to kind of actually go and force myself. Cause I feel like you don't learn languages yeah. unless you're really kind of against the wall. That's the thing. And, and what happened with me was the first six months or so I was living with this Colombian guy yeah. and cool. And then I started meeting lots like of friends and expats all yeah. and I was teaching English. Yes. Right. So I'm yeah. all day long. I'm speaking English. I'm hanging out with people speaking English, even my Spanish friends, we're like, hey, can we speak English? Because, yeah. you know, why am I paying? Exactly. Well, they're paying 30 bucks an hour yeah. and they can hang out with me and yeah. you know, I'll correct them for yeah. free, right? They get to learn that modern, like, 1990s <laughs> English <laughs> that you were spitting back then. It was modern but, then. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I get a girlfriend. I think, oh, all right, I'll get a Spanish girlfriend. She'll, yeah. She spoke English great. Oh. So now her English is amazing, you know? I mean, I'm, I know I'm blaming this on everyone you're, you're, else. You're uplifting everyone else. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was like Jesus. I'm, yeah, a, I'm a lot you're like a Jesus. Savior. I was, savior. I was the expat Jesus <laughs> of Barcelona. Yeah, so, um, but I, I, with language, I always feel like I'm learning the rules to a really complicated yeah. game, and I'm not playing, you know? So yeah. why do I need to learn, like, oh, the accusative case comes in if you're yeah. talking about a hypothetical... Who gives a shit? I'm 14 years old. I live in Pennsylvania. Yeah. You know, this doesn't affect me. But even if you're learning it in a foreign place, a lot of times those formal kind of language courses, like the locals aren't playing by that game either. Right. They're making up stuff as they go right. along. They know the slang. Yeah. They make, they cut and slice all the words too. So whatever yeah. you learn, you end up sounding like a tool when you do go there. <laughs> exactly. And you're like reading out of a thesaurus exactly. while they're like, nobody speaks like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, so so it's got to be immersion. But Spanish is pretty easy. I mean, if you ever do get around to doing it, oh, it, absolutely, it's, it's a pretty. Well, the thing is, it's an easy language to speak well enough. Yeah, right? I, I and, agree with that. And so is English. Actually, it's it's an easy language to speak well enough. Yeah, and both cultures are very accepting of people who don't speak perfectly. So yeah. it's not like France, where if you don't speak perfectly, everyone pretends they don't understand. Yeah, you, you know. So it's cool. I, I got to a level where everyone understood what I was yeah. trying to say. I understood what everyone was saying, and that's where I stopped. Exactly. Just, so there's I, only so much real estate, you know, in your head. Yeah, there's exactly. There's only so much cognitive real well, estate. Well, see, you I can think have. that's true, and and that's what we're you know, how we got into this because yeah. I when I learned Spanish, all the German left. It was yeah. gone. There's like okay, there's that little area. You know, yeah. I've got 20 megabytes of language space yeah. there, and now it's full of Spanish. I think it's true. I, I remember reading. Um, an article about uh, memory, how like older people start to lose memory and stuff. Yeah. And uh, they looked at Chinese people and American people and they found that in Chinese culture, there's not a belief that as you get older, your memory goes. And now there's chicken and egg situation here, but th what they found yeah. is that Chinese people don't have memory deficiency as they get older. That's interesting. Right. Well, it's also a lot to do, I think, in that case, too, with just like the nature of the language, too, because mm. I don't really there's not like a really systematic way to go about learning Chinese, too. You know, when you learn English, you can learn the alphabet, you can learn spelling and you can kind of put things together with right. time. And then with Chinese, it's like you either know it or you don't. Right. And it's like you either know the symbol or you don't. And that's right. what makes it brutal, actually, is is the 
you either know it or you don't. So right. you're more often than not. You so know. it's like mathematics. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. or athletics. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about athletics the other day. I don't remember what the context was, but how it's something where it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your social skills are. It's yeah. like you're either good at this or you're not good at this. And yeah. nobody gives a shit about anything else. I think it was because I was reading about this guy who just got convicted of murder this football player oh and he was like a really yeah and he like murdered three people yeah those like there's a lot of like there's a lot of under the table dealings that you always hear about with like these collegiate players and there's a lot of weird that whole athletic argument is a really interesting one because i know that there's a big contention because a lot of these athletes don't get paid but the ncaa makes like oh hundreds of millions of dollars but we're giving them an education yeah exactly and they you know those guys are like no all we do is is practice all day long right so and they set it up so you don't even have to go to class yeah exactly i had a friend who was uh i think i might have told you this who was uh like a chemistry professor at a like a division one basketball school and he got real shit for actually grading and failing some of the basketball team members yeah like the coaches came down on them real hard and so did the institution they're like no you can't fail this kid right he's a starting point guard or whatever it may be yeah he's like well he also got a 20 percent on the test you know so yeah, and the coach is making four million yeah, a year, exactly. and the professor's making thirty-five. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Academics is not an easy gig by no. any means. So no, no, and I, I often people write to me like, oh, I don't know what I should do. I'm 22. Should yeah. I go to college or grad school? I'm yeah. like, Fuck no, yeah. no. Unless you're doing like biomedical engineering, and that's sure, what I you mean, really want to do. Yeah. Something like super practical like that, where you need the degree to get yeah. into it. If it's like you're going to study philosophy, fuck that, dude. Yeah. Just read some philosophy books, you know? Yeah. You don't need a professor to tell you that. And yeah. if you want to, write an intelligent letter to a philosopher that you admire and yeah. offer to go like volunteer in his office and help him deal with yeah. emails, you'll learn a fuck of a lot more and you'll do it but for free. But that's why we're in such an interesting period of time in human history, right? Because there's so many other resources available now to a person that wants to do something other yeah. than the standard route. I mean, back yeah. in the day... If you didn't go to college, how would you learn about whatever your trade was? Nowadays, I mean, you know, online information, you have more than enough ways to yeah. kind of go about it. And then, I mean, come on, YouTube answers. You know, I mean, it's funny. Take it from the MD, PhD we kids. We have, you know, on more than one occasion in the hospital, there's been, you know, surgeons and whatever. We're in the emergency department and we are always asking them, hey, how do I do this thing? We've never seen this before. And you'll get responses like, oh. Hey, I just looked up the YouTube for that thing. Here's exactly what you do. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I guess. Medical school yeah, through yeah, YouTube. Yeah, nice. exactly. YouTube's the kind of the answer. So. Yeah, it's crazy. I get emails from people, uh, dumbass people, you know, well-intentioned, yeah. nice people. But they'll, like, email me shit like, hey, man, you know, what? what do you, what's the sperm count of Gibbons? And, like. Does Google work on your fucking yeah. computer? Yeah, you know what up, I mean? Man. Like, why the fuck am I going to Google that shit for you? Yeah. Like, I got nothing else to do. Yeah, man. I don't know. Anyway, don't, don't get me fucking whining about it. <laughs> uh, so, all right. So, but I wanted to get, like, what the hell happened? Why did you leave biomedical engineering? And at, how did and yeah. you, you decided to become an MD instead? So, I think so, I actually went into medicine mostly. So... The reason why I went in is not the reason that I really appreciate it. I think I went in kind of as most other people did. I thought that it was kind of a good career choice. It was, you know, an opportunity to kind of apply a bunch of different parts of myself that I found were kind of interesting. 
Um, but when I was in medical school, the way it worked was I was in my first two years, which is all just school-based. And then I did my PhD, which took a whopping five years, which is actually kind of long for that kind of a program. A PhD in what? In a, it was in biomedical engineering. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it was, um, and then and then I come back to medicine and then kind of finish that off before I started my training. And I think the real honest answer to that was by the end of my second year of medical school, I was really burnt out. I was really right. burnt out on the entire system. I was burnt out on how much of, because at that point in time, I had given my whole life to medicine, I had, or to academics, so to speak. And I had really kind of committed so many different parts of myself to just this one kind of focal aspect of my personality, or whatever you want to say it. And so when it came time for the PhD, that was like a breath of fresh air. I mean, because graduate school, you know, a lot of it's, you write your own schedule, That's you kind of, yeah. And so you, the PhD was like a, you know, a rest. It was a rest. It was a rest. <laughs> the first year and a half were definitely a rest, right? Uh, nice. um, and then, I mean, in research, I mean, is it is just so different. I mean, to do kind of research in general, but also to kind of, it's, you know, um, because there's very little originality in medicine, so to speak. The originality is only how you kind of combine what's already been there, right. but in a very kind of regimented way. Whereas research, that's still very applicable. I mean, you can only build on what kind of other people have done. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, at the end of the day, if you're doing your thing properly, you'll have been... You know, you're the only person on the planet that's really investigating this one, albeit rather probably in the long run and consequential nook in academics. Maybe not, but what's cool about that is no matter what, though, there's still like a level of exploration and of discovery right. there. So what did you do your doctoral research? Yeah, about? so I worked uh, with uh, a researcher at Brown University who does like uh, was, does bioengineering, biomedical engineering. And so biomedical engineering, if you want to think of it, one of the ways to think about it is, is the level of perspective or the magnification, so to speak. So when we're talking about like artificial organs, I mean, that's a pretty macroscopic kind of view, right? We're already kind of at the level of organs. But, you know, you can go down to a single cell and still look at like the mechanical forces that are involved in a single cell. And that's kind of been a big change in um, kind of biology as a whole. Because people used to learn biology, it was just like, you know, biology or biochemistry, it was only viewed as just like, these biochemical reactions that were happening, but people didn't really think about it in terms of, well, a cell is still inside the physical world, and as a result, it should be subject to all the different kind of laws of, like, gravity and momentum and leverage and, you know, inertia and all those things. Mm -hmm. And so I had the chance to work with a great mentor um, who um, is like an old-school scientist, and I mean that as in nowadays science has changed to the point where there's such a commercial aspect to it. There's such a, like, a lot of just, there's all these different things to it. But he really believed in the, the process, like the scientific process of questioning and investigating and then reevaluating and then that process kind of happening, you know, um, just reiterating that infinitely and then kind of doing beautiful science. That's mm. kind of the best way to put it. And beautiful science right. is, is not gaudy science. It's right. clean. It's right. well thought. It asks the right questions. and It's, it's, it's a lot like engineering. Exactly. And yeah. it's just nothing else is no excessive. Bullshit, no, no bullshit, right? Yeah. No fat. You cut it out. Right. Um, and so we ended up kind of working on, they just ended up kind of doing, uh, like on the cellular level, they kind of worked on, um, so a really simple, not to bore all the people out there that may be asleep already, but like the way it works is for biomedical engineering, a lot of the basic models is, is that there's like a matrix in your body 
And if you want to regenerate something, you want to throw cells into that matrix um, because that's kind of what's thought to kind of be in our human body. What but do you mean by matrix? Like, so when you look at a tissue, there's not just the cells that are in there, but there's also like the connective tissue that's inside as well. And the connective tissue kind of provides a scaffolding. And then inside the scaffolding, you like so the, the, the walls of the house are right. the connective tissue. Right. And then the people or the rooms that are actually filling it are the cells. I right? See. right. And so his whole thing was, was to take the scaffolding out and to look at how cells interacted with each other, so to speak. So the scaffolding is made of cells too, though, just different. It's made of cell, of cell products. Made of cell products. So it's made of like proteins that are like ah, providing the scaffolding. I see. So, I mean, it's like, like not to get into the nitty gritty of it, but basically the one way to think of it is, is that like 95% of the community had dedicated themselves to the scaffolding model. And he was just like the pioneer kind of, or amongst the pioneers in this kind of other way of kind of thinking about it. Right. And there's just like one of those things where like in science, you know, it's, there's a lot to be learned from investigating all pers- like all possibilities. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot recently about all the cells in our bodies that um, <clears throat> don't share our DNA. Yeah. You know, and, and it it really gets to the point where you start to wonder, like you were saying, perspective, macro, yeah. micro. You know. Yeah. Um, the the level of magnification that you want to consider. From certain levels of magnification, yeah. you are not you. Not at all. And I am not right? me. I am Bacteria. a community of, yeah. I am a system, a community yeah. of, of things interacting in a, at a certain stasis or homeostasis or whatever. But, yeah. but it's really strange. So from a, from a medical point of view, I know you're, you're interested in epigenetics and, yeah. and the microbiome and all these sorts of things where it's like you're not even treating an individual organism well depends what you mean by organism right because all organisms are in fact collections of organisms exactly you know down to the cellular level right is it what mitochondria that isn't of the same yeah it's not it's mitochondria with some thing that that got into the cell uh, i don't know 100 million even years ago your, even look at your gut system right i mean your yeah. your gut is like whatever 100 trillion bacteria that live right. in some vague homeostasis right with each other and then it's like that whole macro micro thing is interesting because you can go the other direction and say well you know if we look at ourselves like if is is if you look at the entire humanity as just one organism, then is it just trying to treat itself for its own ailments, right? Is the medical yeah. kind of, is that just the organ that's trying to treat like the, you know, there's a lot of different ways to play that. Yeah, that's that's something I'm, the reason I'm thinking about this stuff is I'm doing this in the book. I'm talking about yeah. um, the, the super organism, yeah. right? And yeah. how the agenda of the superorganism often is in opposition to yeah. the interests of the individuals that compose that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where we find ourselves now and why we're, you know, headed off this cliff apparently. Um, but, uh, yeah, because the, you know, the, the superorganism, I, I don't know what the hell the, the agenda is cause it seems self-destructive, but yeah. you know, There's... maybe, maybe there is no agenda as such. Maybe it just, it's running its course. I think there's a lot of headroom to be made there too, because I mean, even just the notion of selfhood that everybody has to operate on. I mean, it's like, I think what's really interesting is, is actually kind of the intersection of that with like, 
you know, traditional Buddhist thought or traditional Eastern thought right. or whatever, thought that tends to be less so, like, focused on the notion of selfhood right. and I versus other kind right. of thing. So it's kind of interesting because it's not just for who you're treating, but for the person who experiences, like, it's just for whoever interprets or whoever kind of experiences, even if it's in a medical system, it's like, it's just, there's so so much subtle nuance to that, and there's so much headway to be made for that. Yeah. So it'll yeah. be really curious to see. Sometimes I really wish I was like alive in another 200 years just to see like kind of the evolution of thinking as it gets to that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, listen, you're a very interesting guy. Obviously, I, it's it's over an hour, and we haven't even yeah. like touched on what you're doing now. Yeah. So let's let's jump let's up. So yeah, you're, let's chat. So you're. Uh, so you, you you got the PhD in the biomedical engineering, and then you went back to the clinical yeah. work, yeah. finished your MD. Yep. All of this at UPenn? No, or, so at, uh, at Brown. At Brown, okay. At Brown, yeah. And then, by the way, why are you doing all this in the U.S.? Do you, did you want to practice in the U.S.? Or? I think what happened was, was I had done schooling after I had left. And so once I had left, it was just easier to stay here rather right, than kind of system. jump back and forth. Right. Um, and then now I'm like, so now you were kind of alluding to this. So now after finishing that schooling, I'm doing my training in emergency medicine here in Portland, Oregon. Right. At OHSU. Right. Now was emergency medicine your first choice or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not entirely certain I could do another type of medicine to be honest. Really? Yeah. Just, I mean, just for kind of going back to what we were talking about. I think you'd be an excellent proctologist. Yeah. 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 And all these fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but so how does that work? You, you finish med school yep. and you, you have to do a residency yeah, so in you your residency. specialization. Exactly. So exactly. you say, I want to do emergency medicine. Exactly. You apply to programs around the country. And then you kind of just, yeah. And then you kind of end and up And they going accept to, you or they don't. Exactly. Right. And you do your training and the training ranges anywhere from, you know, three years to, ugh, bordering seven, eight, nine years for right. some of these guys. Right. So. And so you're, um, but part of the program, like you decide to do emergency medicine, part of the program is you do you do rounds in different things, or yeah, is that in medical yeah. School? It's just more like you know, it's you do that in uh, emergency medicine too. So usually the thinking behind it is is let's say you're going into uh, if you want to be trained as a general surgeon, well, a general surgeon has to at least be familiar with kind of all the other types of surgical subspecialties. Right. So they just kind of try to expose <clears throat> you to. Um, all these different rotations. And so it's different than, than in medical school where you're kind of a passive observer. Right. Medicine, first and foremost, is a learn-by-doing kind of. It's, it's a, medicine has a lot of interesting, subtle nuances to it, but the key part to it is that it's a learn-by-doing art form. So it's, right. uh, they basically throw you in, into the midst of it and say, okay, figure it out, yeah. and hopefully nobody dies on you. Yeah. Um, and if they do, they do. I mean, yeah. Cassie did. Um, I think you and Cassie have talked about medicine. Yeah. I mean, I'm more familiar with the European system because yeah. I worked with a lot of doctors in in Spain, and it's very different. I mean, in Spain, what they do is when they finish medical school, they take an exam. It's a general exam, yeah. and then based upon the score that they get on that exam, yeah. they if they score very highly, then they can study pretty much whatever they want, wherever yeah. they want. But as you go down, then the, the openings uh, start to evaporate. Yeah. And so, what ha- like I was doing this research with oncologists, right? Mm-hmm. And 
my first question was, why did you decide to be an oncologist? Because to yeah. me, that's an interesting choice, it right? I mean, like, choice. why are you choosing to work in an area where most of your patients are going to die? Absolutely. That's, that's heavy, right? And I thought I'd get all these stories about, you know, when my grandmother had cancer, there was this great doctor who really blah, blah, blah. No, the reason they decided to study oncology, like all of them that I interviewed, probably 25 or 30 people, was, well, I got, it's called the mirror. The test is the mirror. Well, I got a, you know, 72 on the mirror, and I could study oncology in Barcelona, or to do what I really wanted to do, which was, you know, pediatrics. Or Madrid, you know, or whatever. It's like two hours away. Yeah. And because family is such a big deal in Spanish culture, they would... In order not to be away from their family for a couple of years, they would choose a completely different yeah. career path. No, it's that's like, it's, okay, that's, that's crazy. There is a, there's, a, there's only, I think, of all the years that I've spent in the system, there is only a very select like, handful of people that, aren't, that are not malleable like that. Like, there's mm-hmm. only a very small, select group of people who are like, oh, ever since I was five, I decided the, yeah. the heart I've was my organ. <laughs> you know, the yeah. heart was my right. organ, and I right. needed to operate on right. that. Right. The vast majority of people are. There's a lot of com- like complex things where it's like, how much time will I have with my family? Right. Um, how much time will it force me? You know, like certain things. I just told myself, well, I want to have a family. So by definition, I don't want to be that father that's missing from every like birthday party right. or whatever, or I was on call. So is that what you're referring to when you said that this was like the only sort of medicine you think you could do? In the sense that it was a really good fit, not just in terms of the, the, the lifestyle compatibility, but intellectually, I'm also very interested right. in it. Like Because the, the nature of emergency medicine is a very dynamic nature. It's very chaotic. Right. And it's also... It actually, believe it or not, is an environment where you interact with your patients probably more than any other specialty. Really? So, yeah. So, like for example, so so medicine traditionally has been broke like broken down into two big schools: the sharks and the jets, pretty much, right? Um, and one of them is internal medicine, which is kind of the grandfather like umbrella for like cardiology, gastroenterology, all those oncology, all those things. Then the other arm is the surgical arm, right? So slice and dice and kind of deal. But for both of those specialties, they don't actually interact with their patients very much. A lot of what they do is, is they do what's called rounding, which is in the morning, they'll like rush through all the patient's rooms and then they'll talk about them sometimes outside the door with the, the kind of the supervising physician. Right. And then afterwards, they just disappear and just do a lot of charting. A lot of modern medicine is just charting. And emergency medicine charting is a huge part of it, but we're constantly just like in the room with, you know, for better or for worse. I mean, yeah. emergency medicine is pretty raw in some degree. It's, so you're in the emergency room, is that? Yeah, the emergency right. department. So and it's, do you, are you in ICU as well? We spend time in the ICU <clears throat> as rotations there, but our home oh, okay. base is the emergency medicine, the emergency department. Right. So, so you're there. Alarm goes off, and ambulance rolls up, yeah, and exactly. you're, you you get exactly. a radio call like this was a car accident. You've yeah, got trauma. Exactly. You've got a heart exactly. attack. Whatever. Exactly. And you're like just ready to roll. Yeah, you're ready to roll and whatever comes through the door. A lot of what emergency medicine ultimately boils down to is uh, stabilization. Right. And then you stabilize them long enough so that the other people, the internal medicine right. or, the, or the surgeons, can kind of get their hands on them. And so, how many, like, how long is the shift? You work 12 So they're hours? like, they're anywhere from 8 to 10 to 12. Some people do 12s around the country. A lot of times what keeps you afterwards is the chart burden. 
because in the middle of your shift, you're just running around. Just right. like a lot of people don't have time to eat or pee. I mean, it's that. Yeah. Intense. A lot of times you go into the bathroom right. and your urine's a solid dark yellow. And you're like, whoa. Um, because you, you, because you're, you're just dehydrated, you're just dehydrated and, kind yeah. of working around the clock. Yeah. But then a lot of why you stick around afterwards is to kind of finish off the documentation aspect So you just have it. to write it all up after you've... Yeah, exactly. You have to... It's weird because you develop a very strange... Your, your mind... So it's one of those instances where it, I think, actually makes your personal life a little more challenging, but it makes your professional life a lot easier is the fact that somewhere along the way your mind starts to get really good at compartmentalizing and remembering things. And that's amazing skill because what you'll do is, is you'll start to be able to kind of go in and say, okay, there were 11 people. And I remember each thing from each of the 11 people, what their story was. And I remember where they all came from and what they need to get done and where they should go in the hospital. Mm. But the problem is, is that that doesn't turn off when you walk outside. And, you know, I remember the first couple of months in my training, I couldn't sleep at night because I would sleep at, I had no problem getting to sleep, but I would have these strange dreams where I was still in motion and my mind was still just cycling. Um, And it, it was, you know, it actually took a while for the mind to eventually kind of, like it's almost like you just hadn't gone to the right gear and finally it clicks right. into the right gear and then you can kind of coast. Okay. So, so let me ask you a question. Cause I've, I've had an ongoing dispute with a cardiologist about this yeah, question. Yeah. Uh, let's hear it. He did. Um, he was a, a guy, I, I, he became a good friend of mine yeah. in Spain. What he did was uh catheterization of uh heart muscles sure. that were misfiring, yeah. you know, so he'd go up through the leg, the artery yeah, yeah, and then yeah. like burn around the cell and all this. Yeah. And he did five or six of those every day. And yeah. and I guess as far as surgery goes, that's pretty um, low risk, yeah. and, you know, as long as you don't rupture the vein. or Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, we were talking about um, being in, in high adrenaline, high stress yeah. kind of situations. And he, and he did other kinds of heart surgery as well. But what he said to me was like, I don't feel stress. Like, I, I, no, no, I learned, you know, I went through it and, and then, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't, it doesn't affect me. And what I was saying was, you know, consciously you don't think it affects you, yeah. but I'll bet your heart rate's up. I'll bet you've got more adrenaline in your blood, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, he's, he's the fucking expert. But what do you think? When you say your, your mind clicked into that gear, is it that you've become accustomed to the stress at some level yeah. or are you not actually experiencing the stress? So I think there's two, there's a couple of elements to that. One is, is actually unlike Grey's Anatomy or like the TV shows, the surgical environment is usually a very controlled environment and stuff does go wrong. But by and large, I think the public would be really surprised to see most surgeries happen where they're very controlled settings. There's like music playing on in the background and the surgeon and whoever is helping the surgeon end up just kind of bullshitting around and talking about how their weekend was and right. what their you wives and kids are doing. No, 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 exactly. Right. I think it's the, it's actually it tends to be more so the emergency department where there's, um, a lot more adrenaline involved one because it could be just medically something that's very serious where you need to, you know, if somebody's shot or somebody's involved in a horrible accident, right. they need to be stabilized right away. So right. time's more of a factor in the emergency department than it is in these surgeries because right. these guys, there's really not that much of a rush unless it's an emergent right. kind of surgery. Yeah, if it's a scheduled surgery. Yeah, exactly. You can be, take your time yeah. and it's probably better that you take your time so you don't kind of botch Definitely. things up. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And then I think there is an element of, I mean, somebody had a great quote the other day that was uh, really stuck in my mind. And essentially it was, um, the eyes can't see what the mind doesn't know. Meaning a lot of the adrenaline is built in because you don't have the training and you don't have the experience mm. to understand what to do in that situation. Right. And so it's just that anxiety of saying, I know something should be done here, but I don't know what it is that I should do. Right. And so as soon as you start to know what to do, and as soon as it's, it's all medicine's 99% like pattern recognition. So after you've seen the same situation play out a hundred times, you realize, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's what needs to be done early. And so that takes a lot of the stress out. Right. But then a lot of that is also, that doesn't get rid of everything that gets rid of a lot of it. But the other part of it is going to have to be, how do I manage stress in my daily life? And how do I take certain strategies to, and different people do different things. I mean, there's literally people that just, you know, might as well inject caffeine in their veins. I mean, that's what they do. They just live off of caffeine. And there's other people who kind of um, take a little more metered approach towards it. Right. So, Yeah, I mean, now that I'm thinking of it, he's probably right. You know, I'm probably full of shit on this. (laughs) (laughs) Hate when that happens. But I was thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking like, um, then you were talking about pattern recognition and and the quote, you know, the the eyes, the eyes can't see what the mind doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the difference between like, you're on an airplane and the, yeah. the you know the pilot passes out and yeah. and somebody says you've got to land the plane exactly. and you're like well, I don't know how to fucking land a plane exactly as opposed to the if guy you're a pilot yeah and you're just like, like oh well, no big deal right, right I've let's landed do this. this plane ten thousand times yeah exactly. I know which buttons to push exactly and, yeah yeah it's so the pilot's probably not you know after ten thousand landings he's not like oh my god this yeah. whole plane is in my I hands. mean that's I think what makes human beings so interesting is is the capacity to train I think that's like. Yeah the fact that we can train ourselves to do something that's like, cause I mean, you know, we were talking about hunter gatherer societies a little earlier. I mean, it's an interesting thing to try to delve into hunter gatherer societies to gain information, to impact and to influence our daily lives. When I think our society and our culture has just kind of evolved for better, or for worse, we're so far removed from that. Like we have people yeah. that like, I mean, you know, Kim Kardashian, like, like, from Kim Kardashian to like, you know, Neil Tyson DeGrasse to like the astrophysicist to all these people, like there's just so, such a broad range of people who have become specialized in, in somebody's case, nothing to somebody yeah. who's specialized in like some stuff that no other, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah interesting example. You know, we're so far from hunter gatherers like Kim Kardashian. What? Yeah. Kim Kardashian's right back there, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's as hunter gatherers you're going to get. those deep Armenian roots that she has, man. Yeah, that booty. Yeah, it's all exactly. About the booty. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's true. I, uh, human beings can get used to anything. I, I actually say that in this book, yeah. human beings and rats, you know, we yeah. are the two species that can just adapt to any environment. And in some ways that's amazing, right? You've got yeah. uh, Eskimos and people, yeah. you know, Australian Aborigines and everybody seems to find a way to thrive in these amazingly harsh environments. And yet the other problem is that, you know, we get used to things that we really shouldn't get used to. Not at like, all. You yeah. Know, child labor and working in fucking coal mines yeah. and you know, all this horrible shit that, you know, we sort of accept as normal just because that's what we see around us. And, uh, you know, so, so what's the, what's the presence of PTSD in, 
in emergency care because we know yeah. drug use, suicide, burnout is really high among uh, doctors in Just general. Physicians in general, and particularly burnout's pretty high. PTSD, yeah. I don't think necessarily. I mean, PTSD is less so because a lot of the training environments are very controlled. And and the thing is, is a place like OHSU or a lot of these great programs around the country, you're often surrounded by just some great people who right. are very like it, the whole attitude is is that this is a safe environment for you to learn, and so um, there's very little of like sink or swim attitude where it's mm. like if you don't make it, you're out of here kind of thing. Oh. A lot of it's a lot more supportive. Mm. Um, PTSD itself is something that it's funny you should say that because you know I'm I'm at the VA hospital right now. And not the veterans hospital as opposed to the OHSU hospital. And there, I mean, that's like your patient population. That's where you see PTSD, yeah. you know, 18, 19 year old guys. Yeah. So there's less so of that. I think burnout's the, the real, I think, thing that, if, that, that kind of really affects physicians right now is burnout. It's just the biggest thing. Burnout. And what is causing the burnout? I think it's multifactorial. Um, and that's, I mean, and I think it's different for different people. I think, though, there's a, I, I've always thought that there was a physical component to it and there was an emotional component to it. Like when you're working 80 to 100 hours a week, which a lot of, you know, my peers are, that physical burnout of it is, you know, you get sad by definition when you're sleeping three, four hours a night yeah. in this weird helter-skelter right. kind of way. And are you getting, I mean, back to the physiological yeah. thing mentioned yeah. earlier, you're standing there, you get a call, there's been a five-car accident, yeah. you know, trauma everywhere, people bleeding, you know, horrible. Those bodies are coming in, the, the yeah. ambulances are arriving. Are you getting jacked up? Are you feeling the adrenaline? I mean, I think you do, especially me, because I'm still early on in my training. That's definitely that anxiety. But it's funny because we also work with a lot of trauma surgeons, right? Who's trauma surgeons, that's their livelihood is that right. they have to be there when these patients really get wheeled in through the door. Right. They oversee things in coordination with the emergency and physician. Chilled. And then they take them to the operating room and actually kind of sew them up if it's possible. Right. And these guys are just like they might some of them are like they they're just checking their email like yeah. while this is happening because yeah. they've just done it so many times. <laughs> One of, one of my best friends in Spain was the head of uh, traumatology in the yeah. hospital. And, yeah, he was he was an interesting dude. I remember one day he was uh, telling me about, um, you know, when someone dies in Spain, the default is you're an organ donor unless yeah. you opt out. So in this hospital, Hospital Clinique in Barcelona is one of the biggest transplant hospitals in the world. And he was telling me, like, you know, that morning what he had done, you know, just before we, we got together for lunch, uh, somebody had died. Yeah. And he had harvested their organs. And he told me the story. And it was like, and he was so cool about it. Yeah. He was like, you know, first Ain't we no do, thing. you have to do it in a certain order because yeah. you want the body to stay. So first you do the eyes and then you take this and then you take that. And yeah. the skin, you know, and in the end, there's like this skeleton with some, with just you the, know, it's like, wow. I mean, and some of that you is. You walk is out them. of that to come have lunch with me. And what some of that is, is for us to keep our humanity, there's a level of insulation that we do too, right? I mean, that's a huge part of it because we're dealing with like just things that the average person doesn't have to deal with. Yeah. And so I think for burnout's purpose, to if you put yourself emotionally on the line with every single patient and every single outcome, idealistically, you know, people believe that that may be the best way to operate, but pragmatically, yeah. it's very, very no bad news. That. Nobody survives yeah. that. You have to be able to kind of have some semblance of your own humanity when you walk out through the door. Yeah. And a lot of that is, is realizing, you know, there's, like I said, there's 
the the onus is not just on you it's a shared relationship team, yeah. and then if a person you know is an iv drug abuser and they're coming in with cardiac arrest you know you can't take ownership for that person for the choices they made in their life yeah that caused them to be coming through the door you just right. say you're here we're going to do what we can for you but right. you were talking about death earlier and it's like there's i think the one thing you gain from being in medicine a lot is you gain a healthy appreciation for death and you understand what's that mean just as in i think you understand how simultaneously very strong human beings are but we're also super fragile and i think after spending enough time in the hospital you can kind of start to see like oh like this person's outcome is going to be very poor and if it's not today, it'll be next week. If it's not next week, it'll be next month. Yeah. So it's. A, I think you understand there is a cause and effect relationship to decisions or to sometimes not decisions. So it right. could just be completely serendipitous that you get hit by a car while right. you're something. But, right. you know, I think you start to see at a certain point, there is very little coming back. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like, and we, we live in this culture where we're constantly told it's never too late. You know? Yeah. You and that we're fighters, you know, yeah. that's like the thing is we're, we're fighters. And yeah. All these, these obituaries, you know, after a long battle with yeah, cancer, why exactly. is it always it's a, not a fucking battle. battle? No, no. And you know, I think make it a dance or just, I don't know. There's this poem, uh, rage against the dying, dying of the light, light yeah. you know, and I've always thought, fuck that man, you know, if the lights die and just like, but the funny thing the is I think most over, people would be surprised that most physicians are on that same page. Yeah. Most of the discussions that I was in the ICU recently, and most of the discussions to be had by those ICU doctors are about withdrawing care, not yeah. prolonging care. It's yeah. so rare that you'll ever have somebody who wants to, a family that wants to, you know, it's usually that you have to convince them, look, like the outcome's going to be very poor. And do you really want us to, yeah, you know, do every measure necessary to prolong their life, even though they're comatose for another week? Is that really worth yeah. your benefit or That's their benefit? It's a hard conversation to have. It is, but again, it becomes one of those things where people end up kind of, to some degree, insulating themselves, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, uh, there is a series of articles called um, How Doctors Die. Have you yeah. read those? I have not, but I'd be curious to see it, how It's very is. interesting because it's, you know, they illustrate the point you just made, which is that um, what doctors decide for themselves and their own family members is very different from yeah. uh, the sort of typical fight it to the end. There's no, always a chance. Very different. Like do not resuscitate is very like very high levels among doctors. Absolutely. You know, a CPR, which you see in all these TV shows. Yeah. Very like, seldomly it, successful and yeah. ribs are broke. I mean, properly yeah. done CPR right. usually should have a couple of cracked ribs, right. you know, and if you're 97 and you're... And you've got a, what, what's a, a, a poxia, you know, the yeah. brain's not getting yeah, enough oxygen. Exactly. That's so the you're thing, right? The, I think it was like two or 3% of people who got CPR actually went home and lived and again. that's the thing. I mean, it's the, the live part of it's critical, right? Yeah. Because it's not really, for most people, it's not living if you're alive, if you're just alive. Right, right. It's you're living if you can it. actually yeah. think and you can actually still relate to your yeah. loved ones and all those things. Right. So what, you know, death is a very interesting topic, obviously, because we're, you know, on the one side we're saying, okay, a living being is actually a community. It's yeah. not a thing, right? Yeah. An individual thing. Now we're saying, okay, death, you know, hooked up to machines, unconscious. Yeah. Mm, to what extent is that alive? Yeah. Right? So life is not as clearly defined as we think. I death think is so not as all. clearly defined as we think. No. I mean, I, 
I'm wrestling with, for example, I've, you know, if, if one of my parents um, gets Alzheimer's, yeah. if I go to visit, let's say my father, and he doesn't recognize me, yeah. is my father still alive? Yeah. If he doesn't recognize anyone from his life, he's this, he's this empty, uh, no, this isn't the case, my father's no, fine, absolutely. but I'm just saying hypothetically, you go to visit someone and they aren't... Yeah. Their personality's gone. And it's like, then who the fuck who's are there? they? Yeah. Who's What's there? What's left, right? I right. Mean, and why am I spending all this money to keep that body alive? I mean, it's interesting because there's a. Uh, I know, because I, I know you, you're friends with Duncan Trussell and he's all about oh, Ram. I hate that fucking Yeah. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's all about Ramdas. But I think, it, is it Ramdas or it's one of these other kind of Western, um, Eastern philosophical teachers right. who had a, a pretty big stroke? It was Ram Dass. It yeah. was, right? Yeah. And I remember seeing something about him, and it was, you know, just, he was, I remember they had this interview with him, and he said, you know, like, after you give this talk, people are still expecting the old Ram Dass. That guy's gone. Like, this is what is left, you know? Right. And I think that that's so interesting, because it's the same thing. Like, if you have a big stroke, like, what's left, right? Um, that's yeah. just, I mean, that's, that's, and I think that's what's tricky is, is when people put the onus on the medical community to address those things. I think that medicine, I mean, I was talking to Casilda about this. You know, I think what we're good at is addressing disease. Right. What we're not good at is addressing health, nor are we good at addressing larger issues like that. The average physician is working their tail off to keep themselves afloat yeah. to the point where you know, before somebody dies of liver failure, you don't really have a lot of time to really introspect and think about the more subtle nuances of personhood, I think at the beginning and at the end of life, to be honest, both those, yeah. both those kind of gray areas. Well, so, I mean, the, the thing about medicine is that I think it's a, it's a form of a priesthood, right? Yeah. I mean, from the very beginning with shamans and, yeah. you know, the, the, through the medieval period and all this, it's there because you're in this realm of birth and death and you know you're in this realm of really big uh big concepts and 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 intense experience and it's a sacred place but you're right doctors don't aren't trained in in philosophy no, of death or, or, or even very much psychological or, yeah. or psychiatric stuff. Psychiat psychiatry is all about you know neurotransmitters and this this yeah, medication and absolutely. that. But there's very little discussion of what the fuck is death and how yeah. do you have these conversations with people and what if someone wants to die? How how is it that they don't have the right? I mean, to some extent, though, I feel like those are questions that mean different things for each person too, and that's like right. a personal journey that. I mean, I'm almost sometimes glad that that's not within our scope of practice, so to speak. Because, but it is. That's the problem. Yeah. It is because you. I mean, if it hasn't happened yet, it will. Right? You're going to have yeah. family say to you, you know, my mother just really wants to die. Can you like give me a? a how can I do it? How can I help her? Yeah. Or can you help her? And we're here in Oregon, one of the few places where, where that is. Yeah, that's possible. But even. There's a lot of bureaucracy. It's got to be a terminal illness. It's got, you know, there are all sorts of steps that have to be taken, yeah. right? I mean, I know a lot, and I don't, I'm not asking you this personally, but I know a lot of doctors who have told me that they have um, uh, facilitated patients' deaths. Right, right. And 
you know, I think that's really common in medicine, certainly in Europe. I don't know in the U.S. It's okay. curious. I would be really curious to see how different the European philosophy is on the, that kind of an well, issue. Well, I think the – well, I, I'm just talking about Spain, right? Yeah. I've, I've only lived in Spain and, and dealt with a lot of doctors in Spain. But um, I know that the, because America is so uptight about opioids and, you know yeah. – I mean, in this country, like you can't prescribe over a certain amount of painkiller for yeah. a terminal patient because they're afraid they'll get addicted. Yeah, fucking person's dying, and they're worried they're going to become a heroin addict. I don't know if that's necessary. It's like it's it, so to pitch my two cents into that. It's I think most people that I've practiced with are actually a lot more lenient with. Uh, pain medication but for a terminally you, ill person. But isn't the hospital watching how much you prescribe? They do, but in general, our practices tend to be a lot more lenient for terminally ill people. But uh. it's just that that's like literally 1% of our population that we come into contact with, right. whereas the 99% that we come into contact with is um, not the terminally ill people right. that, you know, there's like on the doorsteps of passing. But right. And then it, not everybody, but... A real challenge for a lot of providers is like, how do you gain a? Like, you kind of have to try to develop a spidey sense of when someone's really in pain versus when they are in pain, but they're also trying to seek medications from you. Yeah. And emergency medicine is an interesting field because that conversation has to happen multiple times a day. And yeah. you have to go into these conversations with people who, you know, they say, oh, like, you know, you look up their records and you see that they've been to five or six different emergency rooms in the last <laughs> two weeks, and yeah. magically yeah. every time they have yeah. the same exact complaint. But but see again, the, you, these terms are so uh, liquid, right? Because yeah. we're saying, well, they're in pain, but you know, they're also scamming the system, and they're, yeah. you know, they're not in that much pain or whatever. But a person who's in a position where they're going from emergency room to emergency room yeah. to try to get their oxycontin or whatever yeah. they're trying to get. They're in pain. They are in pain. They're fucked. I yeah, mean, that's what no. they're doing with their lives. They're fucked, right? No, absolutely. So it's it's pain is is a really difficult concept. That's a very difficult concept because especially a lot of those people got started on those narcotics by physicians, yeah. right? Yeah. Is usually the story runs something along the lines of they tweak their back. They're right. about forty years old. They tweak their back, helping some friend move up their boxes, and then some doctor, in an effort to help their pain said, here, why don't you take a couple of these pills? And then they fi start finding out that these pain medicines really kind of alleviate the stress. And then five years down the yeah. line, that same person is the one that's going to five or six different emergency departments. Yeah. And I don't think we're trying to deny someone of their experience of pain. Right. But at the same time, I think there's something within you when you can see that it's spiraled beyond control. Yeah. And you can tell. I mean, it's just... Um, like I said, it's interesting because medicine is so personal. Each person, like the one thing that's interesting about medicine is, is there's some standardized things that we all know, but the rest of it is, is all up for personal interpretation. So there may be some physicians that say, oh, this person's in pain. I'm going to set them up with X number of pills. And then other people who are just absolute hardliners and say, I absolutely refuse to prescribe anyone these medicines because I'm not doing them a favor in the long run. Right. And then a lot of us fall somewhere in between and a lot yeah. of us say it's more case by case. And then there's also this element of just the bullshit factor. Like yeah. you really try to get a sense of, is this guy trying to tool me? Right. Cause you can smell it in the air sometimes. Too. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. 
I, I wrote a, I, I was uh, studying psychophysiology for a while, and I, I published this, uh, actually it was a chapter in a medical textbook that's used all over Latin America and stuff, and it was about this question of pain. What is yeah. pain? Is it real? And th- at the beginning of it, I described like you're having a dream, and in this dream, you, the snake you know, uh, bites your foot, right? Yeah. And you wake up from the pain. Now, is the pain real? Like, obviously, yeah. it's real. It woke you up, right? But there's no snake. There's no, no, absolutely. And so much of life is like that in hypnosis, you know, like people who have high hypnotic ability have like had open heart surgery with no anesthesia, yeah. but hypnosis, you know, like yeah. what the, the, it's a very, and some people live in, I mean, it's tricky because it's tough until you experience somebody else's experience of that pain. Yeah. Cause then you'll have some people who are chronic pain and, and you just won't know what that is like until you get in their shoes. Well, that's what Casilda has gone through recently. I don't know if you guys have talked about no. that, but, yeah, she's had a chronic pain condition for a couple of years, and um, and she says she, she talks about that. She says, "I will never see people suffering chronic pain in the same way yeah. again." Because I was always like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah your, your back hurts, whatever." Blah. Yeah, and she said after having experienced it, like my, I, I just can't see it that way anymore. You yeah. know, and and she, it's not blaming. It's like life is like that until you experience it, you don't really taste the reality of, yeah. of something like that. And it's tricky because you're asking someone to have the foresight to understand what their decisions are, like yeah. going to lead downstream. Right. Because you're asking someone with chronic pain ultimately what you're trying to say maybe the ideal solution is the compromise of saying i appreciate the fact that you are having pain but if you look at the realistic decisions here we're trying to avoid you from becoming addicted and a lot of that is is i don't know with time maybe we can find something better to manage pain but you ever read uh dr john sarno no s-a-r-n-o very interesting guy he was an orthopedic surgeon uh back surgeon in particular uh in New York. I don't know if it was NYU or Columbia University. Chief of the department. Oh, big, cool. big shot, you know? Yeah. And he started noticing that people were coming to him with back pain. Um, and, of course, it did. The site of the pain, was, there was often a structural anomaly, a bulging disc or yeah. you know, whatever. And um, But then he would examine other people who had the same structural anomalies but no uh, pain. Yeah. So then he was thinking, okay, so you can have these uh, structural issues and not suffer pain, uh, but people do have pain. It seems to be associated with these issues. And then he was, I don't remember the whole sub story, but he was exploring the psychological aspects of what he was doing was he was seeing, he saw that the, most of the people who were coming to him with back pain were in fact manifesting psychological I trauma believe that, yeah. through their back. And what the body does is, is when this trauma is being expressed as physical pain, the body finds a place where yeah. there is uh, a weakness, yeah. a structural yeah, yeah. weakness. So it's the like doctor looks at it. Conversion disorder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The doctor looks at it and it's like, oh, look, there's the slip disc. Well, then it must be caused by that. No, yeah. it's not caused by that. It's caused by a psychological process, but it expresses it at that point because of the slip yeah. disc. Yeah. He, so anyway, he, he's written a bunch of books. Uh, Mind Over Back Pain is the, the title I remember. If anyone's suffering from back pain out there, definitely worth checking out. I believe it. Because what happens is a lot of people just upon sort of reading this guy's books, their back pain goes away. Yeah. Because the cycle, the, yeah, the, you know, the psyche is like, oh, exactly. you caught me. 
<laughs> I think another part of that too is is like how much there's almost an expectation. So again, this can be. I think we're trying to avoid the extremes here, but I think talking about the middle ground, there's almost an expectation on some people's part that you should have a painless experience, right. you know, and that's kind of tricky too because you know it's within the scope of the human experience to explain experience pain. Yeah, just like it's some people are in this weird state where they're kind of made to believe almost through Hollywood that. Life should be one never-ending, you know, oh, romantic comedy, forever young, forever young <laughs> always happy, yeah. you know, and I think it's tricky because yeah. it's a legitimate, it's as legitimate of a, it's as a critical, I think, of a part of the human experience as any other piece. I think all the different pieces are just as valid, you know, yeah. experiences to have, and so... It's just unnecessary pain is, I think, the key part. So, but I think I, I think that's a really important point because a lot of the physical pain that people are experiencing, I would bet, is um, the result of them feeling um, a cultural lack of permission to feel the emotional pain. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, I believe so. That. Like you're you're too cool to fucking break down and cry because your girlfriend left you so you get a back yeah, problem exactly you know or you've got uh, digestive issues or you know it yeah. expresses it's going to come out one way or another and because we don't allow it to come out in, yeah. in a healthy immediate sort of way yeah then it comes out in a, a physical way which is therefore you know more acceptable i think very few people are comfortable with fully expressing their emotional yeah. state well, and it, to the fullest The culture extreme. is uncomfortable. I mean, the new DSM, right? The You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah, the five. Like the, the fucking gr- grief disorder? Yeah. Like, oh, your mother died. If you're upset about that for more than six months, you've yeah, got there's grief a year. disorder. Yeah, there's a year, exactly. Oh, is it a year? It's a year, oh. but it's like... With the, it's like if you're six months for dad, one day short of a year, year that's normal grief. <laughs> that's right. One day longer than a year, you got a disorder. Hey. You got to suck it up, buddy. <laughs> Here's take some up, antidepressants for pills. you. Yeah, take a pill. Yeah, I read something the other day. Tylenol. Did you read the study? No. Acetaminophen. That's Tylenol, right? <laughs> I, uh, this. Hopefully, too many people aren't listening to this because they're going to realize I don't read very much. Oh, yeah, no. You can't. Well, that's uh, when I was in Spain, that's what I did. I was teaching English to doctors, but what I, my stroke of brilliance was, yeah. um, it was conversational English because they all yeah, spoke English exactly. from med school, right? But um, the, what I did was I would, uh, we would talk about the latest research in your specialization. Yeah. So during the week, I'd look up papers in whatever your area was. Yeah. And then I'd come in Monday and Wednesday, and we'd talk for three hours about you know this research. So for the doctors, it was great because they don't have fucking time no, to read this awesome. shit. They're yeah, working. Somebody's you know? keeping you up to date. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this study just came out last week. Um, acetaminophen was indistinguishable from placebo in in treating joint pain. Oh, I so all that. this arthritic, you know, yada, yeah. yada, yada, and it's highly toxic to the liver. Yeah. So all these people are getting fucking liver disease, you know, from overdosing and taking a Tylenol after they've been drinking. Yeah. Uh, come on. There's a lot of studies that are like that. Yeah. That we never hear about. A lot of studies that have well, null results are just, they just There's disappear. a lot of people they that have vested published. interests in it too. There's yeah. a lot of companies that have vested interests in that too. But if we talk about that, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, I know. <laughs> On that note. Hey, listen, it's almost two hours. I feel like we barely got into it. There was no, all no this worries. like intense stuff I wanted to get into. Yeah. But, you know. Next time. Do it again. Yeah. yeah let's so, do it. So you're, what, what are you doing now? You're at the, the VA hospital? Is that for yeah. a while? or is No. 
know. So I'm just kind of um, rounding out my first year right now. It's a three-year program. Right. And um, things are kind of chill. The summer is setting up. Oh, and I, as you, so I'm, were you here for the summer last year? Yeah. Yeah. I'm more than excited for nice. the yeah. beautiful Oregon summer here. Yeah. So. Cool. All right. Well, let's we'll check in in a few months. Let's do it, man. Thanks, let's do it. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, you're not selling anything. You don't have a nothing, website. Nothing, you're not no nothing. place to download your <laughs> nothing, videos. Nothing. Nothing. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. A guest with nothing to sell. <laughs> nothing to sell, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it through FundWhatYouLove.com, where you can. Drop a little uh, little cash in the change bucket. Uh, it's a monthly thing so that we, we know what our budget is. We have uh, predictable income from the podcast. If you don't want to do that, there's a donate button for just one-time donations on uh, chrisryanphd.com. You'll see tangentially speaking. It's on the, on the margin there along with a link to Amazon, affiliate link. So if you buy whatever you buy, if you go through that link at Amazon, we get a cut 2% or 3%, I think, of whatever you spend. So especially if you're going to be buying like, you know, washer and dryer or a bed or something expensive through Amazon, if you remember to go through that link, that'll send us, you know, a nice chunk of change my way, which is much appreciated and doesn't cost you anything. So um, that's it. Thank you very much. Thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, which is Smoke Alarm, one of my favorite songs. And, uh, and thanks again to Brian Bow. If you want to see some photos of and links of things I talked about, Brian and I talked about in this episode, you'll find them at my site, chrisryanphd.com, where you can also go to the store and buy Shore Design t-shirts. Yes, Shore Design t-shirts. My favorite and uh, only sponsor at this point because I don't accept sponsorships, but love those guys. ShoreDesignT-shirts.com. Thanks. Catch you next week. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a
a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.